Bam. So, uh, no, man, I appreciate you taking the time to, to sit and chat. I mean, I've, I've tried to kind of pick up on a couple of the other conversations that you've had over the years on, on some of this stuff. And the, I don't even know why that, I mean, I follow six ranch outfitters, but I haven't really spent a lot of time listening to a lot of their stuff. And then when I saw that you talked to them and I guess maybe it was just what the hell do I got going on here with this tangle of how did I get caught? What in the, there you go, Chris. That's what you do for being organized. Anyway, so it, it it hit my radar screen and I listened to it. And I don't know if it was just because of the number of people that were asking me specific questions lately or just what was going on, but goodness gracious, it just, it was funny. I was like, finally, you know, a lot of what you were talking about ended up being identical to what I've been talking about for years. And I don't know. It's just good to have other people. Let's just put it this way. Knowledgeable people. There's, there's a lot of people that um, want to talk about elk behavior these days that literally only get their information on elk activity from the two or three weeks that they're in the field in September. Right. And, and, they, and they see something and suddenly it's like, oh, well, th- that's this is what's going on. It's like, mm. You, you saw this much, right? There's a lot bigger of a world out there. And so from, and I don't, again, I don't well, know how it's much. It's not that what they saw was wrong. No, right? but, but, but yes. You, but the keyhole they were looking through is pretty small. Fair yeah. point. That was a, that's a fair point. So that's exactly it. And, and I've always, I've always stressed. It's like, okay, let's take it. Let's look, let's rather than look through the keyhole. How about we just step into the room a minute? And just watch what's going on. And right. so when I hear folks like you or Jay or somebody else that talk about, you know, behavior, it's from a standpoint of you've been out there. Yeah. Yeah. Year round, yeah. Year round looking at a, a bunch of different stuff. And then, and, th- and, and what I really loved about what you said on six ranch was, listen, I don't know what I know, but I know what I've seen. And, yeah. and, and there it is. Cause that quite honestly, so many times I've gotten discouraged lately. You know, the more I, the more I learn, the less I know, you know what I mean? It just, I'm the same way. Yep. All right, cool. Well then I'm going to, let's just kick this off. I'm going to give it a little bit of a, a background of why I even want to talk to you. And then we'll just, we'll just dive in, man. Sound good. Sweet. All yeah, right, cool. let's do it. All right. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right. Today, we have a guest, uh, Ryan Carter of DC Outfitters. And the reason why I wanted Ryan on is because, A, there is there there has been some recent changes with Utah and the game cam regulations over there. And people have asked me about that. And I've talked about my opinion on that in the past. However, uh, and Quite honestly, just full disclosure, if anybody's listened to this podcast, so I think it was episode 12 I did uh, last year with Jay Scott. So when Arizona decided they were going to have a, let's just say a discussion and a regulation concerning uh, game cameras down there, um, again, it it threw everybody in a tizzy. So Jay Scott of Jay Scott Outdoors and I uh, spent some time talking about game cameras and, you know, Again, just a real brief recap. If you want to go through that whole thing, you can listen to episode 12. But in general, when Air, when Jay 
was down in Arizona guiding and, and when I've been down in Arizona guiding, I, we didn't, we don't generally focus on running game cameras. We love to call, we love to chase them, we love to, we, we love to play the game. However, there are other folks, you know, it, friends of mine, I mean, Steve Chappell, he, he runs a, a pile of game cameras, you know, and, and the other guys that I've worked with down there uh, run massive game camera surveys or have in the past for their hunting. And there's some good information that comes from it. Uh, and every, every outfitter has a different, you know, I guess, uh, recipe for how they want to run their hunts and, and, and run their clients and, and chase after big bulls. But the relevant point, the reason why I wanted to talk with Jay is because even though in Arizona, he did not run game cameras, now that he's uh, managing the Ot6 Ranch, at least the hunt program's manager for the Ot6 Ranch, he's running about 150 some game cameras across about 50,000 acres of the ranch. And we talked about what he does, what he's seen. And when I heard uh, Ryan on the Six Ranch Outfitters podcast, and I, I recommend everybody go at least, Ryan, I'm going to get, we'll talk here a little bit more, or I'll let you chime in here in a second on what other podcasts maybe you want to have folks listen to. Because again, I, a rising tide lifts all boats. I, I mean, I, I'm glad people are listening to me, but you've shared other information in other places as well. But the Six Ranch Outfitters podcast, uh, and I think, did you guys, re, you guys recorded that last summer, didn't you? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, that yeah. Was with, uh, with James. Yeah, and, so that, James and, is an outfitter himself, so he had a lot of, I mean, he's a heavy hitter himself. So that's, and that's why it was a good conversation. And that's why it hit my radar screen. I was like, all right, here we go. Because full disclosure for you, if, if you're not aware, I don't, the, the vast majority of the public that um, I work with and I assist are just the average, average Joe Schmedley hunter over the counter units. Uh, they're chasing probably most of the time, those two-year-old, the four-year-old, maybe they had a five-year-old bull. And if they get a flash in the pan, they might you know, have an eight-year-old bull trip across their path, but it's the average over-the-counter hunter. Okay. And so I have been in the past, well, and I, and no, I won't, I won't, I won't say that I, I am of the opinion and I have been of the opinion that the average person that wants to go up and run a game camera up in the mountains in the summer, I don't think it's a good idea um, necessarily or, and, or I will say, depending on how they do it, and then, and, or I am caught, I, I try to cautious them, caution, caution them mm -hmm. regarding, okay, what actually are you going to learn? What information are you getting? Is it actually actionable information? Is it going to actually help you? And quite honestly, in some cases, I think it actually hurts them more than maybe what they might be getting from it. And the reason why I've said it is because the average person is only running maybe three, four, half dozen cameras in one basin. And then they go up there a couple times to, to check the camera. So that's where I've come from. Hmm. But I've always qualified that, no, there, you can learn a lot from game cameras. But I think you have to approach it a different way. And so the reason why I, I really am looking forward to this conversation with you is because while Jay is doing functionally what you are, he's on private mm. and he's hemmed in by private, private, private property boundaries. And he is basically inventorying, especially when it comes down to 
getting inventory data for the upcoming hunts. Now he runs the game cameras year round as well, but he focuses because of the way that ranch terrain habitat, and especially the water features are on the, the property. He really, you know, focuses hard on their water sources, which are generally well away from any bedding areas or interior timber portions of the ranch. So he can go in and he can put game cameras and, and he can drive his ranger right up to him. And he's not going to disturb really any elk activity whatsoever. However, that doesn't necessarily translate to the general over-the-counter or even just, let's just say public land hunter, whether you're limited entry or not. You, on the other hand, you are on public land. Mm. And now you are in limited entry. And I'm going to, I'm going to turn this loose to you here. And I'm going to start asking you some very specific questions, but you're on public land and you're covering, you're, you're covering a bunch of acres and you're covering a bunch of cameras. So your experience and what you've done might be argued has a lot more relevancy to the average quote unquote hunter, average quote unquote hunter than maybe what Jay is. So I'd like to have both sides of that because mm. I think we're going to find out that there's a lot of similarities there and a lot oh, yeah. of similarities of what, what I've said in the past. But again, I've always talked about my stuff is anybody can flap their gums at you. On my stuff, if I tell you an elk is going to do something, my goal is to put an elk right square in front of you on video. And then I'm like, here's what the elk's doing. Here's why. Here's what's going on from a from a, a wildlife biologist, a behavioral ecology standpoint. Here's what they're doing. Now, let me show you the elk. Go argue with them. Don't, don't argue with me. You, you argue with them and what you see. So as much as possible, I would rather try to put other people, other experts in front of folks to where they can hear it from multiple places so they know I'm just not full of shit. You know, does it make sense? Yeah. All right. So with that being said, give me, give me like the, the, the five minute spiel of like who you are and why you're relevant to this conversation. What is DC Outfitters and, and, and where do you operate in the, in the fall and, and what do you do? So yeah, my name's Ryan Carter. I live in central Utah, uh, outfit in Southern Utah have, uh, team of four or five guys um we typically take maybe five clients a year tops we kind of focus on quality over quantity we want to watch the big elk die that's our job is age class 100 percent um whether you like outfitters or not i you know that's kind of your deal these limited entry hunts that i guide on um for a non-resident uh, there's only two tags available in most of these units, one to three tops. And in order to get those tags, it, I mean, it's almost hundred percent draw. Like they have this thing where they set aside 50% for the max point pool, but as a non-resident, that's one tag. So that goes to a guy with 25 plus points. And then the other two or one go to some random dude, three points, seven points, 12 points, doesn't matter you may as well be in Vegas. Yeah. Um, and residents, it's kind of the same way. Um, like specifically the unit I stick myself on my guys do some other stuff, but my unit, uh, maybe 18 points might get you in the door. 22 to 23 is almost guaranteed, but that's still 23 years. Um, that's a lot of waiting and we got a lot of old men point systems, 
fairly flawed. We could dive into that another day, but for now, that's what I do is I, I take these guys that have waited 25 years or the Utah does have an, have an option where they sell tags, those tags. Typically, I mean, we bid two up to 70,000 this year, bought an archery one at 40 something thousand bid one up to 95,000 that there are a few auction tags available, but it's ridiculously priced for average guy like me. It's yeah. not even, not, not even on the table whatsoever. So we focus on trying to kill the upper age class. Now, whether that's a 360 bull, a 390 bull, a 460 bull, we, we work with the best of what we got. Okay. And that's a fair point because um, yeah. And, and maybe we'll, we'll touch on that here in a minute, but what, you're going after the best that you can find again. And some of these people, you nailed it. You're waiting 20 some years for a tag. Let's, let's just imagine you were passionate about elk hunting for your entire life. Let's say you, you started putting it in, you know, at 20 or 30 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and, and we'll get into the fact that, you, cause it sounds like you run a lot of tree stands and, and, um, you're not doing running gun, running all. Yeah. Yeah. That's my whole spill. Yep. All right. So with that being said, you are, you are, you're hunting in limited entry units Mm -hmm. and you are trying to go after. And what I will say is you're, you're, you're going up, you're going after the upper crust of those bulls. So you're going after age class, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, you might have, uh, let's say you have a three eighty year, you know, eight year old that's just exceptional as far as his his genetics, versus you may have another three eighty twelve year old. Well, okay, who you know, three eighty three eighty. We're we're going to go after the one that probably gives us the best shot opportunity. Yes, or are you going to say let's go after the twelve year old? Southern Utah is a, a different beast. I, I'm sorry, where are you from? Uh, well, hell, I live and manage property here in Northwest Kansas, but I've spent most of my time in Colorado. And it sounds like you do a bunch in Arizona as well. I do a little guiding in Arizona, usually around nine, unit nine. Southern Southern Utah and Northern Arizona share a trait. And that trait is, you know, I've seen four-year-olds that can get into book. Like, it's stupid. It, so age class is important. But you're, to your point, you know, there are times that I have a really young bull that is just ridiculously big. Um, do we try to hold back? Yes, we do. Um, but nice. sometimes that's the best bull available. So obviously we take opportunity when opportunity presents itself as anybody should. Um, but yeah, if it's possible, we we'll go for the older bull that scores the same every day. Awesome. That, that awesome. Because you're, you're again, you're on public ground. So there's no right. guarantee that that animal is going to live another day or another year to where you can get back on it. And there's a right. lot of outfitters. They'd be like, I don't, and I deal with them out here in Kansas. So Kansas is quote unquote known for its big bucks. Well, depending on the area. Yeah. You know, but everybody wants to paint this broad brush of oh yeah. There's, there's big bucks everywhere. But the other flip side is everybody is out for, you know, themselves to where, I've got people same thing where you have a three-year-old buck that, you know, is 150 inches. Now, granted uh, how we run our operation is I 
very similar to what you're talking about. We only run a handful of people because I want them to have a hot quality hunt experience. And the way our yeah. properties are and the, and the way that the hunting is around us on the, the private land, there is no, we've got a lot of different things going on to where, you know, if someone sees a three-year-old buck, that's 150 inches and they want to shoot him. Okay, fine. Uh, would I like to let that buck walk? Sure. I would, but you've got some exceptional deer, but then I've got some other deer that, are, you know, he's an eight and a half year old deer that he may score 130 inches. And it's not because he went downhill. That's just what he is, you know, yep. where some yep. guys, they want that, you know, seven, eight year old deer, if they can find him, or at least a five-year-old plus other people want just big headgear and it is what it is. So for you guys to have that standard on public ground, that's pretty cool. Yeah, but now it, it helps limited entry. Say, it, <laughs> it helps that you're not just going to have every swinging Richard out there just laying down every piece of bone that they see. But but still, right. you don't know. You don't know if he's going to make it or not. Right. Um, yeah. All right. So when you guys are going after that, talk to me. I don't need to know the exact units you're in because I don't think it's real. It, it's it's. I think it's, it's irrelevant. Not. Okay. It's not. Yep. How many camera? Okay, let's talk. Let, let's just start this. And I've got, look at this. I've got notes like, I'm, I just started. When I start talking elk behavior, I start to geek out and I just blank out. And then it's like six hours later and I'm like, shit. Um, like so I've got, I've got notes. All right. So bear with me. So I'm going to try to take it step by step by step. All right. So here's the question for you. What are the, what's the, what is the general habitat? that you guys are hunting in and that you're running game cameras in. Give me an idea of what the, the mountain, what the habitat, the elevation looks like. Um, that's hard to say. So, okay. So pretty uh, diverse then. Yeah, I'm, I'm really diverse, <laughs> really diverse. Uh, so like somewhere up here running between 8,000 and 10,000, um, it's glassable terrain where I grew up hunting, it's, it's very, um, open and traditional type elk hunting. I can get on ridges. I can glass points. I can glass benches. I can, uh, do a lot of movement, um, where I'm at most of my time. And the reason I run game cameras, right. Is I'm hunting a plateau. Um, it ranges from 8,000 feet to 11,000 feet. Um, the edges of those plateaus are where the elk like to hang out. They don't hang out on top. Now the mesas, they hang out up on top, but the plateaus where I do 90% of my hunting um, is the big terrain that goes up and down below the plateau. And it is very pine, aspen, fir, um, dark, walk for days and barely see the sun. Okay. The reason I run cameras is you never see more than 80 yards. Um, so I've learned to do inventory from my whitetail experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's just, I've, I've focused on pinch points, benches, water, anything that I know from behavior or traditionally elk move. That's what I run. Now, as I get lower into the pinion and juniper and cedars, um, same type of thing, you can't see much, but the difference between a bedding area and a and a pinch and a water, like it's really similar. So like what, when I get down in that low deserty, it's still high terrain. It's still 7,000 feet plus, but I spend most of my time like Jay on water. Water is my biggest feature. Um, 
and down there is just finding water that the cattle don't know about. And so yeah, we're going to get to that one here in a little bit. Oh yeah. So that that's the difference. So I, I can't say like, I, I deal with really high, high terrain. I mean, the, the, the one plateau it's 30 plus miles at 11,000 feet. Like it is, it, it's not like a peak that runs yeah. up and down for 10 miles. It just like does this. this. These are big Southern plateaus. Yeah. Okay. But the, the relevant point is, is you're running cameras and anything from that high PJ country mm-hmm. all the way up into that Aspen spruce community, which, yep. and the reason why I'm asking that is because that is very similar to what a lot of other, whether you were talking Colorado, we're talking New Mexico, um, Wyoming's got some different, cha- you know, different the way its habitat is laid out. But, oh, absolutely. Yep. You know, so between New Mexico and Colorado and Utah and, you know, other places, maybe I, I have not hunted Oregon, um, but, you know, there's a lot of applicability mm-hmm. and very similarities of the habitat you're running cameras into what a lot of other people are going to run cameras in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I've had no problem transitioning into Western Colorado or Northern Arizona from what I do. And I'm running cameras in both those States as well. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Um, on the units that you're dealing with what, and I'm sure there's multiple, but in a ballpark, I just want to touch on this now because it's, it's going to come up important later. What are, is your bowl to cow ratio that you're the units that you're running in? Do you know what, I, mean, I know that you know that what that is, but what generally is that bowl to cow ratio? Um, under five cows, to one bull. Okay. So about 20 bull. Yeah. So, so 20 and above 20 bulls per hundred cows. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. or more. Okay. That'd that, be pretty close. Yeah. 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 So I, my, when I said, yeah, I, I guess I didn't clarify that. Normally I'm looking at, you know, bulls, coal, and cow. So, you know, 25 per hundred, 30 per hundred. Yeah. Yeah, Yep. Yep. Okay. So, and, and I think that's important because the, the perspective that you bring to the table is again, you focus on those upper age class animals, but that doesn't mean you don't trip across the younger age class, age class animals as well. But the beautiful, (laughs) (laughs) the, the thing about those limited entry units is you have the ability to have most of them, not all, but most of them are going to be managed for the the, higher bull to cow ratio. And that is going to expose you to a hell of a lot more and different bull to bull interactions and behavioral experience. And that's, again, Mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to bring this up. We're not talking about now and and, and what uh, is it Josh from Six Ranch? What's his uh, first James. name? James. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. J- there you go, James Nash. Um, he was talking about where he's up. You know, he's well below twenty per hundred. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. and that I think this is where the average over the counter unit hunter starts to need to pay attention because in most over the counter units you're de- you're dealing with less than twenty bulls. You're, you're about that 20 and under, uh, density. Okay. For your uh, age class, uh, ratio. All right. So when I was, li- and, and I've, and I tried to do my research listening to what you've said in the past. So I don't, I want you to cover some of the, what you've talked about in the past, but I want to focus it. So for instance, you were talking with James that, and correct me if I, I misunderstood 
that when you first start out running cameras, you got maybe 80 plus or minus core cameras that you start, that you try to, that you, you, you put them out there. You try to kind of get an idea of what your upper age class of bulls are. And then you kind of find those target bulls. And then maybe you, you bump up how many cameras, maybe up to 120 cameras or so. And you really start to hone in on maybe trying to figure out what that pattern of that bull, that particular bull is. Okay. So can you walk us through again, understanding you're running year round, but when you get geared up for summer, how many cameras are you? It, 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 a, I, I just outlined that if that's correct, let's just go with it. But when are you putting your first cameras out? What are you focusing? You touched on it a minute, but dive in. What are you focusing on as far as those features go? And and what are you and when are you? Let's just take these three. When do you start putting them out? What are you placing those cameras on? And when do you check them first? Okay. Um that's tough because everything's changed now, right? Like you, yeah. like we talked about right when you opened the door. Let's let, okay. Then, then let's say, what did you do like, last year? What did you do oh. last year? And then we'll then we'll when we get towards the other because I want to talk about what you've learned up to I guess twenty twenty two because you're right twenty twenty two is going to throw a monkey wrench in everything. So let's talk not, about not really not not really. And this is it just okay like right up front really fast the job well, do, of trail do, camera. Do we want to flip it? Do we do we want to jump into the the Utah ban a minute and just see and talk about what that's going to do for you? Yeah, we can. Let's then yeah. let's do that. Let's do that a minute. Let's jump into then that. We'll a minute. Go back to the three questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so go for it. Tell tell everybody. I mean, I've talked about it before, but go ahead. Tell everybody your perspective on what Utah just did. Well, I'll tell them what Utah did. Utah simply. Um, to put it really easily, they put a season on trail cameras. Um, what, what they did is that they're looking at what they feel is fair chase. And they decided, you know, we're only going to allow trail cams to run uh, through the winter. You can start January one, but all cameras have to be pulled before any hunting season goes on, which uh, I think the date they decided was July 31st. So all cameras have to be pulled by July 31st. Um, I haven't actually seen the proclamation. They called it a ban in the meeting. I don't know if it's a ban yet. I haven't seen the wording. If, if it's placed, uh, the way it's worded right now on the website is, uh, cannot be used in the aid of hunting, which means you could still run cameras. You just couldn't run cameras on units that you have a tag for, or for me, where I have permits to outfit. So it could be this or that. I don't, I don't know how it's going to be worded once it legally comes out. Uh, Nevada is an outright ban. So cameras have to be pulled. Arizona is not a ban. Arizona is aid in hunting and how they're going to regulate that. I have no idea. Um, now, but, real, real quick, what Utah also did was they, they also regulated the sale of images from game cameras, which is interesting because I, I don't think Nevada does Nevada do that. I know that Arizona didn't touch on that. Not in the regular well, way, I don't think. It wouldn't affect Nevada because Nevada, they have it, it's a ban. They have yeah, to be I, there you go. So I guess you're right. 
you couldn't sell those images anyway because technically you shouldn't have a camera Shit. out. You're breaking That's the a fair rules. point. The rules. So it's like if you're going to sell drugs, you're going to make money. Yeah. Um, Arizona, I think that was the 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 sale was the portion of it where they're like, hey, we can't make you pull all your cameras. We just can't. We you just can't use them in hunting and. To be fair, if they're going on fair chase, that's probably the best way about it. But regulating something like that, it just, I mean, that's a nightmare. Um, so I don't know how Utah is going to be, um, but simply put, there's a season on cameras. And how it's going to affect me isn't really that much. The object of a camera is where I was going with our three questions. The reason we run trail cameras, the reason we started back in the early 2000s with 35 mil camera like the whole reason we have them is to take inventory, to figure out what our age class is. Like our job when we get a tag is to figure out what our goal is right up front. We need an objective. You don't want to show up. I don't want to show up in Kansas and shoot a 140 opening day when I have three deer on the property over 160. Correct. Like, or, and, or, and pass, as, or pass a 140, like, or and, vice and, versa. As, and, and as my job, if I, you know, it, let, let me just put it this way. I will let, for me, I will let you do that if you want, mm -hmm. but I'm going to, I'm going to show you the picture. Okay. We've got a 200 inch non-typical that's coming to this water tank, like every three days. It's just a matter of time. You, you sit your stick. And if somebody wants to shoot the 140, I will shake your hand just as hard. I, I, I tell yeah. everybody, I will shake your hand just as much, just as hard. If you shoot a two by two is if you shoot a two Oh two. I, I want you to be happy, but my job, I, 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 my job is to let you know what I, what we have on the landscape. And, and we're, I was going to get to it here in a minute, but you nailed it with, with James managing expectations. What, mm -hmm. what is your expectation? So what you're doing, keep going is you're, you're out there getting an inventory on what the hell are you dealing with? Are we dealing with a 460 bull mm -hmm. and, and like three bulls over 400 inch this year? Or are we dealing with, and this happened a few years back when I was guiding down in Arizona. It didn't matter that last year we had a 410 or 420 bull on camera. That same bull showed back up on camera and he's 370 this year because the drought and everything else has gone. It's the exact same animal. The inches changed. That's it. The inches of his headgear changed. Our best options. That's all yep. we're trying to find out. We want okay. options. We want to figure out what our age class is doesn't matter what species we're hunting, what state we're in. The object of the camera is to figure out what our age class is and what our objective is. We've got to manage expectations. So when someone rolls in, they have an idea of what we're going after, what we're not going to shoot, what we are going to shoot, what we're going to try not to shoot for a few days before we lower expectation, go for something else. So that is the job of the camera. So the new law for me doesn't really affect me too much. Um, the only guys that's going to affect are the guys that are running cameras during the rut. Now, I don't know how you do that. I don't run cameras that transmit images. I have every camera I have, I have to walk to. So even if I walked up in there and saw, oh, it was here four hours ago, it doesn't mean anything other than he's in the area, right? So I, I don't know how that would affect anybody during the rut. Um, what I do without behavior is figure out patterns. I, I figured out, Hey, I'm hunting these mesas. I feel like I'm hunting whitetail. 
in my mind, this, this is early two thousands. I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, man, I can't see what these elk are doing day to day. I can't sit up on a point in glass. I do happen to know the elk pattern, just like every other ungulate walking the hills. So I worked really hard to figure out how to pattern elk. Um, I figured out their rotations. I figured out kind of, I don't, I don't even know, like behavior. They, they have specific behavior things. I, you probably heard me talking to James and I told you like, walls are just scrapes. Elk have rub lines in August, just like whitetail have rub lines in October. They're pre, put, post, rut, lockdown. It's almost all the same, just different dates and different size. Elk run a really big rotation. Younger elk, smaller, four, eight miles. Older elk, I have elk that run 14 miles on their rotation. It's huge. Um, Figuring that out took a ton of work, took a ton of cameras. I can't glass those bulls. And so this is, it's that simple. You're just taking inventory. What you do with that information you get all depends on you. Like, how smart are you? How, like, are you smarter than that elk or not? Like what? So I sit down and try to figure out my best spots where I get daylighting pictures. My best opportunity for my hunters to capitalize on for the information that we've put together. And typically I have all that information put together by July 4th. So to answer your first question, when do I start? Typically about May. That's when I kind of, I have the opportunity because I have a lot of history to go, okay, I'm going after a bull. Uh, not, it wouldn't be ABC because A died last year. B is still too young, but it would be C, G, and M. Those are the bulls I'm going after. So starting with that, I can take those areas and go, okay, plastering eight cameras in here and six cameras in here and five cameras over here. And I like this spot up here. So I'm going to do six cameras up there. And all of my cameras, I run great big loops to get them. I, I don't pin them on a, on an app. I, I literally have known these spots so long that I just kind of know when I walk my route, I, I got these six stops or I got seven stops for, and sometimes I'll have an extra camera in my pack to like pull one or put another one out because I'm seeing something I like. Um, so that's the win. I usually by May. So um, let me, let me just clarify. So in your area, are you, mm -hmm. are you with snowshoes and a snow machine going up there? Cause there's snowpack or are you, is it okay. So you're shaking your head. So, or, or, cause my question was, you know, are you waiting until snow melt and, and you know, the elk start moving. So you're, you're getting up in there before the elk even have access to those areas. Some of the spots and it depends on the winter. Sure. Right. Fair enough. Fair most enough. of the time by mid May, I can access most of it. There's still snow on the North slopes. And there are times we definitely throw in the snowshoes, but it's not, it's not so horrible that it, it just kills me. You know, sure. yesterday I, I went shed hunting. I did 16 miles and I'm telling you today I could barely walk. That's why it's like, <laughs> I just woke up from a nap. Dude, I'm so tired. My hips hurt. It was tough. Um, so How old are you? Yeah. I'm 45. Yeah. So I, I just turned 50. So yeah, I just tell me I don't bounce anymore. You know no. what I mean? It just, it's, it's, I, just, I just don't bounce anymore. My wife yeah. says, she's like, why don't we go ride horse? You know, why don't we ride our horses? And I'm like, not to sound like a pussy, but 
because it, it freaking hurts. It, it hurts my hips. It hurts my knees. I can I can ride just fine. And then I get off and I've got to wander while, you know, hobble around with a, with a walker for the next, you know, six hours, try to just get my joints back to in alignment. So anyway, to a leave, to a leave and a nap. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, cause, and the reason why I asked about the snowpack is because when everybody asks me about when's the best time to scout, I'm always advocating get in there as soon as the snowpack allows you to get on the landscape. I, because the snow preserves a bunch of stuff. In my opinion, it just, it just kind of shuts everything down on the landscape. As soon as that snow melts, you're going to see those elk trails really well. You're going to see the old wallows really well. You're going to find out where all the old bedding areas were really well because nothing has grown up and buried it and covered it. You know, things change. So get in there after the snowpack. So that's why I just was curious when you were getting in there. So, all right, keep going. Well, and, and, and you know, on top of that, if you can beat your elk into a lot of these places, you're not throwing a wrench in anything when you walk in later. Now, Thank you. Yeah, no, I don't keep going. Thank you. I really don't see a lot of, you know, white tail. You walk in to check a camera in a bedding area, you're effed. It's done, right? Like, I don't get that as bad with elk. I don't wear rubber boots when I walk around in the mountains. Like, they do pick up on scents, though. Like, if I don't spray down my cameras when I'm done, they walk over and they'll sit and lick my cameras and smell them, especially back when we could do bait. Utah did also get rid of bait uh, in 2020. Um, and they, they, they were targeting mule deer hunters, they, these guys that are leaving out piles of apples and blah, blah, blah. I've never seen bait work with elk except for maybe alfalfa in the winter time. Like I, I can't throw out a pile of apples. Elk don't give a shit. Like, no, but, but I, heard, I, I heard, I heard you talk with James though about salt. And I, and I've, I've had this discussion as well. There's so many people who are like, oh yeah, I got, I, I'm going to go pack in salt. It's like, okay, you, <laughs> go for it. You know what I mean? I mean, if you want to pack it, if you want to pack in a 50 pound bag of salt or a, a 50 pound salt block, okay. And then you put your camera on it and you get a whole bunch of use during the, 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 you know, when they're growing their antlers and then all of a sudden oh, yeah. velvet pictures are awesome. Oh yeah. And then all of a sudden they go hard horn and they're like, I don't get any pictures more uh, with the salt block. I'm like, gee, I wonder why that is. Right. Well, <laughs> salt works great during the velvet uh, up until about the 10th of July. The second the velvet's done growing and it starts to tighten in on those antlers, salt's done. Like they don't give a shit. It's done. So folks, that's not me. Have, that's not me saying it, folks. That's someone else who's who's. Uh, keep going, brother. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. So, but I I don't put it out anymore. Not because um, th- there are like loopholes in that rule. Like it, it it can be X amount of so far from where you're going to be hunting and blah 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 blah. I don't like loopholes. I don't like the crap. I know where the elk are walking. I'm still getting their pictures. The only thing Salt did for me personally is get them to stop. It was nice to get them to stop yeah. and look at the camera, go back and look. And then you're getting all of these angles of their head turning and you can actually get a better idea of kind of yeah, field is, judging. Is that, is that a two inch kicker or is that really more of like a three inch kicker? <laughs> that, that, there we go. That's what we're looking at. <laughs> that's, that's literally, well, and you know, sometimes a third rake here looks like it's eight inches. And you get back here and you're like, oh, it's more like 12 inches. Yeah. You get to see the belly of it a little bit more. Yeah. That's all it is. And so for me, because I like rules. Now, 
I'm telling you, man, if there wasn't for rules, these deer wouldn't exist, right? Like I, I wouldn't kill big things because we would all be killing them. If, if we had more than a five day season, you'd see more big deer dying. But the fact is we have five days or nine days or 13 days, whatever you're doing, rules kind of keep the big animals alive. And by following the rules, it gives us more opportunity later or less opportunity, depending on how you're looking at it. I like rules. So I tell my guys, we're done. Don't put out any bait. If you need to change it so that we have a longer window of them walking through while you're in there, change it. Don't put out any salt. And by July 31st, depending on how this rule is worded and what units we're running, right? My cameras will be out. I don't want to deal with it. I, I don't ever want people to feel like somebody has an upper hand. Yeah. It just it in all reality, well, cameras. And, and and with you and, and your your notoriety, I mean, and it's just like me out here. It doesn't matter if we wanted to skirt the the legal limit of the line. The amount of scrutiny that we have on us, someone's going to make a bullshit anyway. And so it's like we I can't even I can't even flirt with it. It's just like, no, I, I mean, it, it, these are black and white. We operate within with well within the lines of it because I don't want anybody to ever go. Oh, or, or for your oh, that's. It's it's August first, and well, that's got to be Ryan Carter's camera. Oh, but calling the game warden, and and you know, it's just like okay, now we're we're and like you oh, said, you're giving you're giving people too much credit, man. Like oh. there will be a rock in that camera faster than a phone call be made. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to play nice here, but trust yeah. me, later on we can go down the rabbit hole of what I deal with out here and just that. Uh, anyway, yeah. but okay, well, so so you're you'll have them off and you've mentioned before so you're I'll like okay and was i right roughly you know on that first go what maybe 80 cameras or so on the first go are you putting all your camera assets out see that's where things are going to change this year it used to be i had between 65 and 80 core cameras these okay. i'm getting these core ones going and starting, it would take about three weeks to get them all out. And then I start back on the next day. You know, I'm three weeks out and then I'm starting again, going through them all. Okay. So then I'm getting an idea. Okay. This bull showed up and this bull showed up and this bull showed up. Um, I don't think that's manageable for me this year, even with help. Uh, trying to get 80 cameras off the mountain by July 31st is going to be pretty tough. Um, even if we're pulling a bunch of them as we go, cause we're going to make a target list of bulls. Right. And once I kind of have their patterns down, I'll, I'll only have three bow hunters in camp and three rifle guys early season. I don't do late stuff. Um, we'll start pulling and kind of making inventory. I still feel like 80 will be heavy for me this year. I'm probably going to top end 60 cameras total in Utah. I, I still have a bunch in Colorado and maybe I might be running a little bit of Arizona. I haven't pulled those cameras yet. Um, but total for those areas I'm at 60 will be super heavy. So, and, and when you say 60 cameras approximately, and I'm not even going to ask acres, how many square miles are we talking as far as where those 60 cameras are going to go? 
Or you could say acres um, if you want. I don't care. No, I, I would have no idea. We're probably talking uh, 30 miles by 16 miles. Okay. And on the other side of that mountain, we're running about 14 miles by 10 miles. Okay. Now, so do the math, whatever that ends up being. Yeah. A lot. All it's right. a lot so, of miles. Yeah. And the, and the point being is going to lead into what you just said a moment ago. So again, my critique of what, when people come to me and they're, they're like, oh yeah, we're going to run game cameras in the summer to scout. Again, these people are going into, maybe they have a basin or a drainage, or maybe it's this, you know, you've got this main Valley, this Ridge, this bench with this high Alpine bowl and coming out your, your confined area. And when you look at the old, I mean, you literally just look on it and Google earth, you say, okay, this is where you're going to hunt. And maybe, and you know, I look at their game plan and then maybe you go across the Ridge. It might be a mile wide by two miles deep, or let's just arbitrarily just say two miles by two miles where they're actually going to hunt. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you go up and put two cameras in there. Okay. You're going to be limited on what you, what you understand on the landscape because in, and you've mentioned it, you're, you're looking at, you're, you're going into this base and may, and correct me if I'm wrong. You're going into this chunk of real estate and putting four to six cameras there and then going right over the mountain or whatever. in this little, you know, this base and put another one, you know, handful here, the next one, a handful, next one up over the mountain handful. You're basically looking at the entire mountain. Am I correct? Let's say unit. No, I'm okay, okay. There, you, there, <laughs> there you go. go. That's even like, better. I, I don't look at a basin. I don't look at a valley. I don't look at a, I'm looking at a unit and I'm saying, this is where my biggest portions of the herd are. These are the areas where the bulls like to hang out. I, I have areas that are just decimated with, I, I mean, not to go into cattle, but cow elk. Like there are so many of them. There's no point in hanging a camera. I will, I, I might catch a couple migrating bulls moving through every now and then, but the cow elk will just decimate it. But those cameras were awesome to run in September. You know, those cameras I'd get in there and like, this is going to be the best rut camera ever. And I'm sticking the 4Ks up and I want the video and it's just content and fun, which is what cameras are. Yes. Cameras are fun. They don't kill animals. Okay. You, you and I are the, so this. Okay. So this is where, and I know my opinion and your probably your opinion differs from other people. Uh, I, for what I do out here, I love my cell cams. Now, granted, I run a bunch of my cell cams for security purpose, just basically anti-trespasser and anti-poacher stuff to where I'll, yeah, put, I'll, yeah. yeah, I'll put it on certain places where I know that if somebody wants to drop off on the road and, and go push my river bottom, haha, gotcha. 30 seconds. I'm going to have a picture of your stupid face on my camera. And within a couple minutes, I'm going to be standing there asking you why the hell you're, you know, pushing my river bottom. However, yeah. but the flip side though is yeah. Some of those places have deer on them and it, I enjoy knowing, Oh crap. So, you know, this particular buck showed back up now. And I talked about this on one of my recent podcasts is of all the, I don't have the numbers of cameras that you did, not even by a long shot, but as far as the acreage and the saturation that I have, there's in the past eight years, I don't think there's a single deer that we've killed 
because we had immediate information off of a, off of a game cam. You, you still have to hunt mm -hmm. you, you, that just even with a cell cam. Okay. So he steps in front of my camera and you know, it triggers. And 30 seconds later, I've got a picture of him. If I was sitting here at the house and I still wanted to mobilize to the property, some properties are, yeah, a couple minutes away. Other properties are still, you know, 15, 20 minute drive. And then you still got to try to sneak in there. And then you still, it, well, it, it helps me. It Like you said, it helps me get an idea of who's on the property, where and when in inventory so I can focus our hunting efforts. Mm -hmm. but yeah, it, what, what you do with the information, you have to be smart enough to utilize what you got. Right. However, this, this is the difference. And I'm, I still wouldn't say that transmitting cameras kill animals. That, that's stupid to even say, I, yeah. I can't believe people say it out loud and not laugh. However, there are people that have and, never experienced them. There, there are people that just know, don't ever use them. Going back to your analogy with the basin, right? You're running your two cameras. They're transmitting cameras. If, if I got, say I was hunting, uh, well, I was going to go with deer, but say I'm on an over-the-counter unit and I get a bull on a transmitting camera hit me and I live close enough that I'm like, oh, I got elk in that basin right now. Or my season's long enough that I'm like, I can, I kind of have a window of three weeks. Oh, well, there's only one water source in that basin. He's up there now. I'm going to get in stand and sit on that water source. He probably will die. If you know how to utilize the information, transmitting cameras can kill animals, kind of, in the West, right? Do you follow that? Oh, yeah, yeah because completely quite, different. Correct. And, and so and I will I will concede your point. You could literally in many areas in Colorado, you could have four GLTE. I mean, you could literally have a, a camera right up the hill or th two or three of them that actually have reception. And you, hell, you might be laying in camp and like, oh, shit, he's on the bench up there. OK, so we're going to go up the mountain and we're going to go hunt that animal. Especially if you have a guy that can glass that bench while you're slipping through and find him okay yeah so, so now yeah so now okay so we're splitting hairs and, and we don't have to go down the rabbit hole completely on this one but again now what you're talking about is having an additional asset just beyond the uh, transmitting camera right. because depending on the camera and depending on your cell signal i know where i'm at i, I and the cameras i run I, it might be 30 seconds sometimes maybe it's a minute but there are other places where that it'll ping and, and it'll come in five, 10 minutes later, or quite honestly, I've got my, uh, the other cameras that are sitting here that they only send in a batch and you have to tell it what yeah. batch it sends like an hour, six hours, 12 hours. Well, and again, I can set it on, you know, every, you know, every hour, but while it's trying to transmit the entire system is down, not taking any pictures. So it's a right. catch 22. So again, we don't have to go down through the rabbit hole of, of transmitting cameras, but yes, in some cases, yes, transmitting cameras can be an additional asset that might flirt the edge of, is it aiding in the actual taking of a critter? Let's just, let's just yeah. stick with the, the standard game camera that you have to go up and pull the card out of. Okay. Right. So, um, so you're talking unit wide, you're going in there with 65 to 80 cameras and you're, you're putting it out across the unit in key locations around there. To determine age class. That's our to, job. We're taking to, inventory. To, to determine age class and see what your 
And then once you've kind of gotten that first, and that shocked me that you said about a three week, let's just arbitrarily a three week cycle. Once you've gone through that three week cycle, are you then starting to hone down? Are you moving those cameras or are you just letting them soak and you're just pulling that information? Well, it always depends. Um, one of, one of my hardest things that I deal with, and you said we were going to talk about it, but one of the hardest things that I have to deal with where I'm at is cattle. If I'm on one of the parcels, I, our, our uh, cattlemen are required to move their cattle from section to section to section to prevent overgrazing. So some of my areas that, and I know I can look it up, but I never do. Usually by the time I've made my second route, I have a pretty good idea of what sections have which cows in them. But the areas that have those cows, if I get cattle in an area, they might burn a, ca- a camera in a week. Yeah. Yep. Cards full or batteries dead, whatever it is, they will burn it. Because fact of the matter is where I'm at, a lot of my cameras are on little, you know, 20 yard square openings and the cattle get in there and they feed on that grass till it's gone before they move on. Like they'll bed there. They'll stay there. They shit and shit and shit and shit. And those cameras are dead. So it always depends, but you know, really, and this is why it hasn't changed for me. All my information is done by July, even some of my older age class bulls don't finish growing till about the 20th or 24th of July. So I, I couldn't, some of my bulls, I couldn't say, dude, he's going to break book. He's actually going to break 375 this year because I don't know till about July 20th, but July 20th, is the latest, most of my bulls, I have a pretty good idea how big they're going to be by July 4th. So to say, to have cameras pulled by July 31st, it, for me, fine. If I was a mule deer guy, I'd be livid pissed. July 31st, man, you've still got 30 inches, 100 inches on some of these bucks. You still got a lot of time. It makes it really hard on those guys. I, I don't like the way this was pushed through the system. I don't like it. it cameras don't kill animals. I think it's silly. I think it's stupid. I'm going to follow the rules and it's just, um, so, okay. The opportunity pulled. That's my point. Okay. And so I'll just, let me jump to it. Cause when you saw on Instagram, I put out the, you know, ask me a question, you know, ask if people want to ask you a question and one of them came up was all right. Well then if cameras don't help people kill bulls or kill animals, then why are people pissed off about it? Then, then, then why does it matter? And I think it goes to, in, in, for your case at least, and how I like it, it, it allows me to have an inventory of what, and it helps me manage my expectations. And it helps me understand what's going on in the landscape. But to the point, and I guess the other flip side is, is this, and I'll let you chime in what your opinion is on that question. I, no, I won't. I've already shared my opinion. What if, if, if to that, cause I don't need to, that's the, I'm having you on because I want your opinion. I don't need to jaw jack. So what is your, what is your, what is your statement to that? You know, if, if it doesn't help you kill animals then who gives a shit, why, why do you, why do people get upset about? Well, that guys like him, like I would like to have a full conversation with, because 
he's just got it in his brain that, well, if cameras don't help you kill cameras, animals, why do you run them? My answer is because of inventory. We're figuring out age class. That is the job of the camera. That's the job it's always had. We're finding inventory. We're taking, we're figuring out what is available on that unit. What is our age class? What are we going for? It's setting up expectation and perspective. perspective. And those are our two most important questions. That's what the role of the camera is for. Does it kill animals? I've never seen it. Okay. For, uh, now, let me play devil's advocate. Let, let, yeah. let, me, let me put, I got my black hat. I talk about putting my black hat. I've got a black hat on. If I was to play devil's advocate, and what you outlined is a very valid qualification and distinction between what you do and what other people do. Because you go down to Arizona, Unit 9, it's combat bow hunting on water holes. There's 15, 20 cameras or, and I've never, I, I'm not a big mule deer guy. And so, but on the strip, I guess it's the same thing with mule deers on every little, you know, trick tank or anything else. You've got 20 cameras on there. And if someone just sees that there's a bull there, it's just like, it's again, it becomes clown world. It's, it's just mm -hmm. a combat bow hunting experience and everybody descends on try to kill that animal. And sometimes mm -hmm. that animal dies. So yes, there, there are some outfitters that use it for, you know, if you're running it during the actual rut, when, when animals are locked down in a, and especially if you're talking about animals are locked down on a limited resource, which 99% of the time we're talking water. When you're in the desert. Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. So this is where, yes, I could see that. Oh, I understand the rule. I, oh yeah. Like, yeah. I'm totally, like I said, so but not Everybody everyone talks about this because it's easier to make an illustration on the desert. It's easier to show um, you walking into a water hole in the desert and there's a cedar tree with 20 cameras stacked on top of each other. I don't know how they're accessing their cameras. It's no different than where I am. I promise you, I have little openings. There was one year that I was chasing one bull and I called him chunky monkey. He's dead. There was 37 cameras on one opening because one guy was getting nighttime pictures in there. Jeez, okay. And we, it was a highway going in and out of there, running into guys going to check their cameras because they wanted a picture of that one bull. And, and all of them are like, oh, my uncle's got a tag. We're going to kill this bull. And I tell him, dude, awesome. Good luck. When you do, I want a picture. Like, just let me see him. I want to see him. Chased him for years. That bull died being gored on his own terms, 11 years old. He didn't get killed by another hunter, regardless of the 37 cameras in that meadow and below the meadow had another 20. And then my rotation of 43 cameras on one bull, that bull still lived. Yeah. It's, that, cameras again, don't kill. Most of the time, the people, yeah. most of the time, the people that are, are complaining about it or have a visceral reaction to it. And that yeah, doesn't matter are people that Emotional. don't have, yeah, they don't have extensive actual experience utilizing them to where they actually get the full idea of here's the strengths, but holy hell, here's all these limitations I never even knew of. Here's, here's all the, the things that they go into, you know, that, that are problematic. Now with what you just said there tipped on a question I had, uh, when you have these high traffic areas, I agree with you. I've never seen elk 
smell a camera and go, screw that, we're out. Now, whitetails, yes, okay? You, you got to be careful on whitetails. However, my argument has been with a lot of these high traffic areas, like you said with that one meadow of 37 cameras, what did you see? Did, did, no. Did you see? Behavior-wise. Yes. What happened? Or what does happen? Anything or nothing? Nocturnal. Didn't leave. Went completely nocturnal. And it, you know what? It didn't have an effect on his growth. It didn't have an effect on his behavior. He still walked through the same areas. He didn't walk in those openings until after dark. And he would still be in there for four hours, chewing away, you know, doing his thing. These guys were getting pictures of him, you know, and, and my brain, because I think I process different, was I liked those cameras. I, because it I, actually like, helps you. It helps them not kill all that these guys into a place where that bull only shows up at night. And I'm laughing. I'm like, dude, he daylights here, 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 Correct. here here and i don't have to worry about all these like guys up in this other meadow because he ain't going up there during the day they're not killing him so i have three tree stands in this little wallow well my guys like got him tiptoeing around his spot we still didn't kill him we still didn't kill him even with all my knowledge didn't happen well but i i've actually made the and again we don't have to go down this but just as an aside i actually said quite honestly i would rather see states make the make the first law you can only use transmitting cameras because if everybody went up there on june let's just say june 1st and put up a transmitting camera especially the high efficiency ones and then never had to go back up on the mountain and stomp around and cause disturbance and 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 create i think you'd have a lot more animals still utilizing the landscape in a a, there you won't shift animals to a nocturnal standpoint you can look at this in arizona on the trick tanks that how many animals come into those trick tanks in the dead of night just because of all the activity that's around there versus if go ahead put a transmitting camera on there now you never have to go into that area and disturb it now the elk can actually you'd probably learn more and you could probably let those animals have more of a natural pattern and a natural uh cycle but again we we can go down a rabbit in the hole west, on that. in the West flat, flat out. I don't have a single area I can run a transmitting camera. So, and see, that's the other, that's the other right. thing that people don't realize. It's like, well, but you don't have signal there. I, I don't give a shit. If you don't have signal, you don't have, Oh, that's a bummer for you. But if you have signal, great. You, you can only use a cap. Well, anyway, the reason why I bring it up is because this is one of my number one criticisms of the average Joe Schmedley running a game camera on over-the-counter units is you might have a you get yours up in there mid-May and then the next guy gets his up the third week of May and then the next two guys get up there the June 1st and then the next three and you just start this cycle of human disturbance on that landscape to where you're going to just the, the re, in my opinion the repeat disturbance is going to change behavior and it's not going to if the behavior shift is not going to be to your advantage later on when you want to hunt them if you kick them into not advantage of that information like i said i the average person i liked that meadow because it brought in all the attention there and i was able to hunt him over here where nobody was at i i just fair point it 
people get like so wound up about it. Like, like you said, cameras can hurt just as much as help. I can't tell you how many guys that ate their tag because they had a picture of bull X and I'm laughing. I'm like, bull X is 14 miles that way that he hasn't been in that country since April, whatever, like, dude, you're way off. And it, they eat their tag Let's and it hurts just as much as it helps. However, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go, go finish your thought because this is you've got me. This is right where I was going. Go ahead, finish your thought. <laughs> well, I was going to get into a really long story, and 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 I, and I want to tell it. It's just cameras can help. They can hurt. They they can give you inventory. They do exactly what you lay them out for. That's the whole point. That is the point. It does not kill. And so for guys that get upset, I, I had a couple, there was a, like this dude, who runs a decent podcast. It's decent. Wanted to get me on right away. And he's like straight up hater. And I kept telling him, say when, like, let's sit down and talk. <laughs> I'm your uncle. A bunch of those questions like that one. And I'm just like, dude, I'm ready to talk. Let's talk. Why? If, if, if we're trying to disarm the outfitters, right? Why did Doyle Moss kill the four biggest elk in Nevada last year? Smallest one being like 417. No cameras were aided. No do-it-yourselfers outdid him. It, it wasn't because of the cameras. Did you level the playing field? No, he still did it. it it's, you're going to see it's even worse. The problem is these outfitters are on these units every year. It's like me. I know I'm not going after bull A, B, and C. I'm going for G, N, and P this year. Yeah. I know exactly where I'm going to start. I know exactly where they rutted last year. Like you guys that need to try to keep up with me, just threw yourselves in a wheelchair. I, I run an inventory of bulls and it's gotten smaller. Let's say in 2008, I had 20 bulls, 375 plus. When I would like throw my bulls out at my clients, this is what we're hunting this year. These are the bulls. These are the most patterned bulls. These are the bulls like I have the most information about. And it's shrunk. I might have five bulls over 375 this year that I'm going to throw at my guys eventually once I start getting pictures. This is the problem. Before the game camera rule, if I look back at let's just say 2008. If I look back to 2008, the other day I thought about it really hard and I came up with five guys. Um, and just off the top of my head, I can th think of three of the five now, but there's only been five total that have come into where I'm hunting and killed one of the bulls we're after out from under me. Do it yourself hunters. Yeah. Now, there was some luck at play. There was this, there was this, there was this, whatever. But those five guys, the only reason they were in there, the only reason they killed a bull I was after was because they were stepping on my heels all summer long. They were watching where my truck was parked. They were walking those trails, checking cameras. That's the biggest thing. The biggest thing about walking into some of these units is knowing how to get in and out of each area. Well, these guys were figuring it out in July running cameras. You are crippling those guys. Now, we still have the season. They're still going to be able to go in and run cameras, and they're still going to pull their 8, 10, 20 cameras, some of them. 
by July 31st, they have the same opportunity as before. But man, if I look at those, say over since 2008, let's pretend 80 bulls, right? Hit list bulls that have been on my mark that got killed out from under me, whether it was during the archery hunt, rifle, whatever, only five. And it was because they were running cameras because they were just stepping on my toes all summer long. And what is awesome, every one of those guys are my friends. Every one of those guys, I was right behind them. I was able to walk over, shake their hand, take pictures with them. We packed the elk off together and it was a great experience. I, I'm happy to see it, but man, you really just kicked the do-it-yourself hunter in the nuts. Because if you think for a second you crippled the outfitter, no, too. and and I and I and we I've had this conversation. I think Jay and I talked about it, and I mentioned it on my podcast. Was it's you know in some in some places the game camera was almost like a, a, a gun. It's it's the great equalizer because these outfitters are going to run five, ten. Well, hell, you go to Arizona and and there's like one hunter in camp, and there's ten vehicles. You know, you know, five to ten, eight, you know, or whatever. How many? quote unquote helpers, you know, that are just covering the unit, just out there, just busting their butt. I mean, the average guy doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, I, I think what we're going to end up seeing is it's going to be interesting to see what we see over the next couple of years, as far as unintended consequences, whether or not the average hunter sees a benefit or the average hunter actually is impacted more now that cameras aren't on the landscape. And one of the things that I said about for Arizona, I'm like, guys, quite honestly, at least for the guys, at least for the hunters that I normally take, I I am not a guy that's known for, you know, I'm going to go out and kill the 400 inch bull. That's not what I'm about. I want to go have a fun time and educational hunt. We're going to call bulls. We're going to have, and we're going to go after the biggest bull we can get on and and call into you. But a lot of my guys are like, okay, I drew it. I drew a tag. Yeah. Do I want to shoot a 380 or a 400? Yes, I do if a 360 steps in front of me, will I shoot it? Yes, I will. Any 350 bull or better. I'm like, you might want to consider putting that thing on the ground. The question is, is, you know, if, if we're hunting an area and it's got a, a lot of good bulls around it, well, if there has been a 400 inch bull or three, three, let's just say 375 or above, that's been operating the area. Having the game cameras on the water holes is kind of nice because as soon as that bull shows up, like three water holes over, you want to know where everybody's going to be like whoop, everybody just piles over there. Guess what happens? We've got all of this real estate all to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yes, we get to play with the three fifties and three sixties and whatever. And my guys, they don't, but we never see anybody. Well, now that you don't have the camera, guess what? We're going to have more activity circling the general area as people are out there trying to lay eyes on that gigantic animal, which means we very well may end up inadvertently having more contact with people on the landscape that we never had before because they were focused in other areas that we don't need to focus on. So it's going to be interesting to see what the, what the uh, unintended consequences are going to be over time, but I don't know. Yeah. When, when, when Utah had this meeting, now Arizona's meeting went a little bit different, but when Utah had this meeting, uh, they had it posted. It was on a board that if anyone was paying attention to the website, they would have seen their having their, this this so-and-so meeting and the public had access. 
Um, but nobody really did. There wasn't like an announcement. So no one showed up. And the only problem I had with the meeting and the way these laws went about, I sat and watched the meeting on YouTube. Um, and I had counted, I don't remember. They used the word feel or feeling. It was like 32 times. The public feels like this. We feel as a consequence is this. Our feelings are that we should go this route. Do we feel like this is fair chase? Feel, 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 feel. And my whole thing was, when do we make laws on feelings? Show me. Show me behavior. Show me that, that, let's look, we're not the first state to do this. Did Nevada's age class increase? Did it create more opportunity for hunters? Did it increase the herd number to where we could allocate more tags? What did eliminating the trail cameras do to better opportunity? Show me the facts. They didn't make this law in facts. No. 32 times. We feel. Fuck your feelings, man. Well, like, let, look I'm at super the, upset about it. And, and we don't and we don't have to go down this, but look at society in general. I mean, that's the, that's the problem. I have been and and I've and I'm part of the reason why I'm talking to you today is so I could pump the brakes on my own, basically calling out the bullshit of sportsmen, because we've got a lot of people out there ringing the bell on, on how great hunting and sport, you know, all we are, which which we are. However, there's a lot of shit that we need to clean up in our own house, so to speak. And, and I've been just pounding it lately. I'm like, hmm, I bet. I better, I better pump the brakes. Otherwise people are just going to be like, dude, Chris is just angry these days. But that's the thing is feelings, man, feelings, everybody, you know, and this is the thing that I, just pisses me off. We get, we get angry that the animal activists, how many times you hear sportsmen bitch and complain and criticize, you know, well, animal activists and the anti-hunting, well, it, they, they just, it's all off of emotion. It's all off of emotion. It's all off of emotion. I'm like, hold up. Yeah. Uh, what are we talking about here? Because I'm seeing a lot of people, you know, sportsmen knee jerk reaction, just, just flaming out. You didn't even, you didn't even like dive in and, and investigate the actual issue. You didn't get any of the facts and you didn't get any of the alternative side, but yet you're, you're going to jump in all on emotion. And, and we, if we want to see sports, if we want to see hunting continue in the future, I think we're going to have to stop doing that. And I really don't want to go down that hole because I've got so much more I wanted to ask you about. As I, do far as to, I do want to say something about that. Cause go for it. Go for it. I, I, I did like, cause it just illustrates what you're saying. Okay. Somebody posted a picture of a dude sitting on top of an elk has his gun in the antlers. Now, when my grandpa was around, this was a lot of pictures. Yep. Threw your, your, your gun in the rack and you sat on the animal or behind the animal and took these gripping grins. I love those pictures. Personally, I'm like, that, that is us. That is hunting. Now, someone had posted one of those pictures. This is some dude, I swear he was from like Oklahoma with a giant bull elk. Like it, it was an off, like a, a non-traditional state with a giant bull elk, gun on the rack sitting back behind him, grinning ear to ear, just happy as shit with this giant bull. And people tore into him about how like 
untasteful that was, how tacky that picture was. And I put it on my story and I said, read through these comments and show me one non-hunter attacking this kid. Who are we appeasing? Are are you really like worried about being tasteful for the non-hunting public? Because no one trashing this guy is a non-hunter. Every one of you are hunters. And look at how you're treating this dude. He just got the elk of his lifetime and probably his dad and his grandpas and everybody else who's never even seen an elk like that. And you guys are attacking him. And me personally, I'm like, that's a badass picture. That was an awesome bull. Good for you, kid. Got his overalls on, his rifle in the rack. I thought it was awesome. We need to be better about treating each other with respect, kindness, and making educated decisions. Like to your point, you're spot on 100%. I wouldn't say you're angry. I'd say you're passionate and I like it. Well, and, and the, the funny part is, is we're going to table, because I like, there's so many facets to what you, the story you just said. I'm not a fan of those type of pictures. But I'm a fan of that success and, and what the guy went through. But we don't need to talk about that now because that right, could be right. that could be a very good that could be a fun conversation. Oh, the grip the grip and grin's hilarious. I don't I don't care how you do it. You want to take a sombering picture with your head down and hold. Oh, those piss me off. Okay, so those whatever piss me you want to do. More. I, oh, I don't care. I'm like you do you, man. Just yeah. All right, but if, well, if that's well, how you want to celebrate your success. By all means, do whatever you want to do. But we we could do another three hour podcast on that. Right. Okay, I'm cool with that. Let's move I mean, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, dude, you've got this. Is the thing is, I I do appreciate the amount of knowledge you have on on bull behavior based on what you've picked up just running these game cameras over the years. Okay. So, and again, I I want to. You are targeting a different class of animal than the average guy is. Not. Not because, well, for a variety of reasons, in in many ways, is the average person just isn't flat out even hunting in the same type of units you're hunting in. Okay, so you're not gonna. So the average guy's not even gonna have an access, most likely, to a ten year old bull. You know, I mean, if all of a sudden a ten year old bull showed up on a lot of these over the counter units, I mean, holy freaking bejeebus! Yeah, it it would, you know, it would stand out. Most of the time, we're talking two to four year old bulls. However, go to, let's talk real quick. Loops. And this is the one thing that I thought was very interesting. And I think a lot of people need to understand. You start looking and pattering the loop of those animals on the mountain where those elk are, are, are spending their time. Jay and I talked about on the Ot six ranch that, and this comes up with my conversations, but from an animal behavior standpoint, you've got massively wild, different personalities in the individual animals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the odd six, you've got some bulls that are homebodies that, that they live on the ranch, they stay on the ranch and they rut in this particular spot every year. And, you know, you, you can predict them. And then there's other people or other people, other bulls that just, they never are on the ranch until it's the rut and boink, here they show up and vice versa. Here's these bulls in the summer. And they're all there. And all of a sudden, whoop, time for rut. They just pick up and, and leave. And we talked about, you know, in unit nine versus 27, that one bull, that flare bull that everybody was after in unit nine got killed in unit 27, which was like, uh, or excuse me, unit seven. Seven. Like, yeah. yeah, which was like 23 miles away. You know what I mean? So there's this wild movement on the landscape. And I think it was in, interesting what you said with James was you've seen a little bit of a difference between the younger age class bulls 
and the older age class bulls. So when you're a couple questions on your cameras, what are you finding as far as your bull groups? Are we dealing with, and some of these questions I already have the answer to, but I'm, I want your take on it. I want your opinion on it. I've got my opinions. Let me just put it this way. I've got my opinions and, and then you, you share yours. Are you seeing 10-year-old bulls mixed with five-year-old bulls and two-and-a-half-year-old bulls? Or are you seeing the older, upper-tier age class mature bulls kind of with themselves or off by themselves and then younger age class bulls with themselves? Does that make sense? What, what are you seeing as far as your bulls during the summer? Well, let me tell you what I haven't seen. I haven't ever seen a bull over seven years old with another bull in the summertime. Let me tell you what else I haven't seen. I don't see a bull over 380 pushing cows. It's happened a few times, very rare. They don't do it. To your demographic, to the do-it-yourself hunter that's not hunting limited entry, a lot of the information that I've gained is kind of useless. But I can tell you, like, younger age class animals, bulls under seven, bulls under eight, let's say, okay? Your typical herd bull, you know, you, you see a lot of these, uh, you, you hear a lot of these guys, especially the old school guys, they'll tell you, like, oh, you run into the herd bull. That's the biggest bull on the mountain. My experience is that's not true. That is your typical 340 to 360 bull. It's your young six-year-old that it's finally his chance. It's my moment, right? It's like us in college. That's how we were in college. Dude, I'm effing all these chicks. They're mine. This is my world. Like, we're so stupid. Our frontal lobe isn't done. We think we're so smart. We think we're smarter than our dads. We're dumb as shit. That's your six-year-old elk. And to your demographic, that's what they're chasing. The herd bull may be one of the best bulls on the unit. However, on units that I like to guide on that, is managed for a six-year-old plus bull, which means there are bulls that are 12 years old. I've seen bulls 14 years old on my unit. That's old. They don't run cows. They'll follow the herds. They stay fairly close. And what's funny is when a or cow gets between. hot, they swing in, <laughs> grab that hot cow, keep her for a day, let her go. You won't see the lockdown behavior in older elk. Now, lockdown is real as in the elk world as it is the whitetail world. They want to get all those cows away from all these satellite bulls, get them in a little canyon. They'll shut up. They won't talk. They just want to screw, do their thing. And then a week later, they wander off. They're done. They're exhausted. They need water. We're out. The older bulls won't do it. They really, they'll follow them. They'll hang out. They'll bet on that ridge. And every now and then they'll catch a whiff and they'll dive in and grab a cow and come back out. They don't do it. Older age class bulls are grumpy. Now going back to loops. Okay. I, I've noticed younger bulls like to stay in groups, just like you pointed out. Um, I, and seriously, 350, 360 class younger bulls will be in groups of two to 10 and they will, dude, I've seen even big bulls, uh, but they're young, you know, 380 types hanging in groups, but Eventually, as they get older, they turn into grumpy old men and they just realize it increases their chance of dying and, and they just kind of get grumpy and they stay on their own. I've seen them follow each other, kind of stay behind this dude and I'll stay behind him a few days and whatever. I, I have noticed that, but they won't 
bed together. They won't travel together. They won't. It's like we're buddies and, you know, he's over there. But, I, yeah, I'm not going to bed by him ever. So older age class bulls are funny. And, and they do. They tr- these loops usually consist of elevation. Um, elk, if they can avoid it, won't travel elevation a lot. They like to run these benches that go up and down. And they do miles and miles and miles, but they don't like to run up big, steep elevation points unless they have to, you know, I'll have, I'll have cattle move in on a bench and take over an area. The elk don't typically leave. They just move up in elevation to where the water's cleaner. to where the cattle aren't pissing and everything. They don't technically leave. They just kind of move. They shift. Well, so that's good. That yeah. Sense. Well, that's what I was going to ask is, so, and you, there's a couple things there. Um, I, and, and my mind just jumped to the cattle one because that question comes up all the time of what happens when cattle move in. And, and I've always said, it kind of depends also on, are you talking cattle move in or are you cattle or, or, or you just have cattle in the area where the elk are? Because sometimes that initial pulse of cowboys moving cattle into the, the, you know, it just, all of a sudden they bail out. Well, that's the difference between cattle and sheep. A lot of time when sheep move in, they've been pushed in just like your cattle. And so a lot of these guys, like in in Southern Utah, where I'm at, I don't deal with sheep much, but right here in these units where I grew up hunting, there's tons of sheep and the guys push them in and they leave and the elk are gone. Dude, 10 miles, they're out of there. Like there's not a chance you're going to see an elk and cattlemen, when they push it, cows through can do the same thing on elk country it's not as not as prevalent though for me usually yeah in in a lot of cattle allotments they turn the cattle loose and the cattle are in there in the allotment and then they pull the cattle out and so you got these two pulses of when the cattle are in cattle are out but they're there for an extended period yes okay and then what and i i didn't even think about touching on the sheep but yes and a lot of the high country stuff that i've used to in colorado yeah, you've got sheep herders there where they're on this hillside for three to five, maybe seven days, and then they push them to the next basin, and then they're there for a week, and then they push them and push, and you've got constant movement of disturbance across there, and you can watch. It's almost like pushing water with a broom. You can just watch the elk just swirl around it and move, and once the elk are out, or excuse me, once the sheep are out, let's just say we've had good rains and, and you got some vegetation, maybe popping back. You can have those elk rotate back in behind them. But while those sheep are on that landscape getting moved, especially if they're running those propane cannons and everything else, trying to keep the cats away, the elk just, they're, they're out, they're, they're out. Yep. Now, and you, and the other thing too, with what you said with cattle is, you know, water quality, trying to find that, that good water. So in Europe now, okay. So the other thing I wanted to ask is you were talking about with James, you know, maybe what did I, where did I write it down? I wrote it down. Hold on. Something about along, as far as the loops were, um, you know, the younger bulls, younger bulls were like, uh, you know, maybe five to seven miles. And then the loops on the older bulls could be eight plus mile, big honking moves. Let's, let's, again, let's, I know this, it's not your passion, but let's focus on those five to say six, seven year old bulls. Cause in a lot, what I've argued in a lot of over counter, especially in Colorado, over the counter units, the herd bull actually may be a three year old or four year old bull. It's, it's not because 
he's the biggest. No, let me rephrase that. He might in that particular area, he very well might be the biggest bull in the area. The cows are going to choose the bull. And, and you've said it, I've heard you on other places where you've said it as well, cows are going to figure out, they know where they want to run, where they want to spend their time. And the bulls are going to make the move to them. And it's the cow that chooses the bull that she wants to, to lock up with. If you're in a unit where the oldest age class bull on the mountain is a three to four year old bull, she's shit out of luck. That's just the best bull that she has. And so she might just lock down with it. And I've seen a lot of times and you tell me it, well, you just did a little bit ago where people are like, well, I, you know, I was up here, maybe I ran cameras or maybe I was up here scouting and, I, and there was all sorts of animal activity all over the place. And now I'm here in September and there's no one talking. I can't find an elk. I'm like, yeah, because if you've got a three-year-old bull that all of a sudden these two cows and, and their calves decided, yeah, you're our bull and we're, you know, we're going to split up and take, he's just happy to be there. You know what I mean? This is the first, or he's a four-year-old bull. Let's just say you've got a five-year-old bull. In a lot of these smaller, not smaller, where you have the age class of, you know, 20, no, not age class, 20 bulls per hundred cows and less. Most of those units are managed for opportunity, which means you have a lot of death by a, on a lot of your bulls which then inadvertently ends up a lot of your bulls end up being of relative, in my opinion, relative even age class, which just ends up being that younger age class. And I'm sure you've seen it. Bulls fight. And Jay and I've talked about it on his pod with, with our discussion about bulls actually fighting. And you touched on it with James, that five, six, seven year old bull, He's had a taste of breeding. He's had a taste of, of this is my time to shine. And if he gets a group of cows that wants to, you know, choose that, you know, choose him as their herd bull, he's going to defend them. There's two, in my, what I've always argued was there's two different strategies. When you're talking about the strategy you are, or when you have high bull to cow ratios, all of a sudden cows become a limiting factor on there's ne there's a lot of bulls to go around and there's less cows to go around. So the competition for bulls getting cows is heightened. However, man, when you're in those units that have 15 bulls per hundred cows, you have a lot of times where there's very little competition for those cows because there's more cows on the landscape than the bulls are. And so a lot of those young age class bulls are just happy to get what they can get. And what you said, that lockdown, there's not a lot of people that I've heard talk about uh, elk lockdown. I have. But it's nice to hear someone else talk about that to where all of a sudden you've got that pre-rut activity where you got bulls that um, basically interspecific competition where they're figuring out their pecking order and they make that pre-rut move and they're, they're moving to those cow groups. And then once they start settling down with those cows, they just freaking flat vanish. I talk about all the time. We may be the average over the counter hunter might be going after a three or four. Let's just say a four year old bull. How call shy, quote unquote, call shy as a two or three or four year old bull versus that 15 year old cow that he's holed up with. So I'm glad to hear you talk about them just going over and holding up an area and just keeping their mouth shut because they don't want to be disturbed, especially the cows. The bulls don't they don't want to have that comp, that, that competition and, and risk getting injured or they'd risk losing their cows. Here's my question to you. 
when you're talking about those loops that they're on and, and using, you know, let's just say they stick to the bandwidth on the elevation on the mountain. That's fine. In your habitat, how are you still seeing that movement, that, that, that cycle on the landscape, that loop, when you have food, water, and cover, sanctuary area, pretty much everywhere. So, for instance, in Colorado, I know of places where you might have good bedding, good sanctuary area, good water, and good food, and it's literally, let's just say, a 300-yard radius. And those elk just hole up in there, and I, my argument is they hardly even move. But what you were talking about is even those younger age class bulls in your habitat, it seems like you've got good habitat scattered across the landscape. I don't know how your water's distributed. Are you still seeing those, let's say three, four, five, seven, let's just say seven-year-old bulls, are they still making that loop that you've determined even when they have good habitat everywhere at their disposal? Is it a behavioral thing that they are moving or is it all based on the habitat? Does that make sense? Um, well, it kind of jumps. What, one thing about like loops, okay, just, just to break that down real quick. Loops are pre-rut behavior. Starting about Labor Day, loops are done with bulls. Cow elk still have behavior patterns. They're not loops. I mean, any elk in the world, I don't care where you are, right? They go up in the mornings and down at night. Cows have their thing they do. They just do. Um, So once the pre-rut like once the velvet comes off, the loops are done pretty much by Labor Day. If, if I have a bow hunter, the, the reason I've done what I do learning the loops in Utah is because we have a really early archery season that not a lot of other places have. We start August 18th, August 20th. I have two weeks to capitalize on patterns, those loops. The reason I talk about them, I'm talking to bow hunters and I'm an ambush hunter and I try to tell them. Figure out where your pinches are. Figure out where your water spots are. Figure out where they're daylighting. Those loops, you can capitalize on them. Use it. Kill them. It's awesome. Does it happen very often? No. So when we get moving into the rut and we get talking about lockdown and cow behavior, cows, I hate the rut. Like, I'm just going to put that right out there up front. I'm a trophy hunter. I go for age class. Same. Yeah. So the rut for me is a nightmare. I will call in 20 plus bulls before I get one over 350. And when you're targeting one over 375, it might be 200 bulls. It's exhausting. Depending on how many sets you do in a day, on a good call day, when you're calling in bull after bull after bull, you might do 13 miles. On a bad call day, be prepared to walk your ass off 16 miles in a day, 20 miles in a day for four sets. And maybe those bulls were 330. The rut is hard. Um, and so that being said, like even, and, and we're talking about limited entry, you know. Okay. You, That's the qualification. You go, yep. And so when we talk about um, pre-rut or, or rut behavior and, and cows, even those bulls that shut up, let, let me give you guys a secret that, any guy, you know, any guy that's been on the mountain in September, even the call shy bulls in the middle of the lockdown that nobody talks about, 
we'll bugle at four, four in the morning. So get your ass out of camp two hours before light, ridge to ridge to ridge to ridge and bugle. Because even during the lockdown, you can find those call shy bulls. The wolves aren't after them. The, the, like, the people aren't after them. They've still got to impress those two cows they got. Even though they chose them. Or keep the other bulls up at bay and say, don't freaking come over here on this bench. I'm still here. And even though they won't call during the daytime, at least you have a starting point. They're down in this draw somewhere. They're up in this area somewhere. They will work. The other thing I wanted, when you're talking about cows, I've noticed in my experience um, as a guide, and granted I'm limited to about, well, I, I guess, consistently maybe like seven big units that I've hunted through my lifetime consistently year after year. The only time I see uh, changes in rut migration, because that's what elk do. Second, they get cows, they start pulling away. And typically if you're a high altitude elk hunter by September 25th, you're typically chasing those same bulls down in pinion. They will migrate 14,000 feet pretty damn fast. Um, but the way they migrate down there is typically determined by the matriarch of the herd. So on these units that you have lots of cow tags available, I will see your, the rut migration change drastically year between year between year. These areas that don't have high, um, cow hunts, not a lot of uh, cow permits allocated, you can almost bet money where these elk are going to show up September 25th. If you know where those elk go every single year, I promise you they'll be there the next year. But it's always determined by the matriarch cow. So if you have an older age class of cow herd in there, man, you can you can really capitalize so, year after year where you're going. So hold on a minute. You, you mean to tell me that a bull doesn't come down in there and collect his cows and then push his cows into his rutting area and then sequester his cows into his area. Is that what? Yeah, and that's like your 20 year old <laughs> college brain, right? You're like, Oh, it's my time that's, to shine. I'm, this is how I'm it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't work that way. The, no. the cows take them. They're going away because one, he's pushing them. He is, he's pushing them. I got to get away from these other bulls, but the he, cows are like, well, we know where we're going. We're going down there. That's correct. where we There's water, there's it's, shelter, there's pinions. What's where we're going. The, the, and what I've always talked about is, is when you watch a bull engage his cows, now younger age class out the window, because again, they're that teenager, that, that, that early 20 year old that, that thinks they know what they're, you know, this is how these women are going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Right. You will watch those bulls just constantly pester those cows for no reason, just low antler displays and herding behavior, just and driving those cows nuts. That's why the cows would actually prefer to prefer an older age class bull. Cause most of the time the older age class bulls are going to leave the cows damn well alone, unless there's an emergency. And usually when you see a bull engage that cow group, it's in short bursts. We got to react, move, go. Okay. Threats over. You guys just do whatever you want to do. That's and, a fact. And so I'm, again, people I'm, I'm, I'm talking with Ryan because I can flap my gums at you, but when other people have the same experienced people that have time in grade, if you will, from a military term, time, they've, 
they've spent the years, they've they've done the work, and especially when it's across the entire, you know, whether we talk about summer into fall and then winter, but especially 12 months out of the year, it gives you a better perspective of what the actual hell is going on, especially if you're, I mean, as you've talked now, you've been in, uh, you focus a lot on the limited entry areas, but you've been in Arizona, you've been in Utah, you've been in Colorado. When we're talking about elk behavior, I, I have qualifications on this, but generally speaking, an elk is an elk is an elk. They're going to react to their habitat. They're going to react to their age structure and the herd dynamics. And they're going to act and they're going to react to predation slash danger. And after that, it's, it's elk is an elk is an elk. So I'm glad to hear you say some of this stuff. So, all right. Then let me, cause geez, okay. this is, this is the problem with my podcast. They always end up being like, three to four hours. If you, yeah, I just did one with Aaron on Kafara. It was like four hours. So anyway, uh, <laughs> let, let me touch a couple, let me just hit a couple of questions that I'll kick you loose. Cause I know you're, I appreciate the time you've given me so far. We're good, man. Um, here's it. Okay. So this was, and this is why I love the guys that guys and gals that follow me because uh, they ask just intellectually good uh, questions. What have you seen over these past years? Because when you said uh, you started running game cameras, you really started getting hot and heavy in your guide in what, 10, 20 years, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. When did you start? 2003, four. Okay, there you go. So good. Perfect. Because perfect. Because that gives you a good breadth of time. What have you seen? Because we've seen different, uh, we don't need to go down the climate change rabbit hole, but obviously we've had some changes in our weather patterns depending on where you are, whether it's seasonally or whether it's trends over multiple years. In your opinion, is the rut happening at the same time it normally does year in and year out in the areas that, at least in the areas that you operate, are you seeing the quote unquote rut happening the same time every year? Or are you seeing the rut happen later or are you seeing the hap, the rut kind of trending earlier? What, in your opinion, what have you been seeing these past several years? Uh, that's a good question. Again, it, it's always it like so like you talk to Corey, <laughs> good, okay? Corey Jacobson likes to focus on moon. I do too. In fact, when I book my whitetail hunts. I look at the moon phase because I'm trying to book eight months in advance and I'll say, okay, yeah, I want to show off November 4th. That's what I'm going for. I, I'll see it that day. You want a bright moon or you want, so I, I don't talk about full moon. I talk about a bright moon phase versus a dark moon phase. Cause you know that you get about a half a moon and it's pretty darn bright, you know? So yeah. from a half moon to half moon, you know, that bright moon phase and then half moon yeah. to no moon to half moon is darker phase. What also so what, depends on, what your season dates are, you know, like Iowa, I like to do in October 20th on, on a, on a dark moon phase. It, okay. Like everything depends on your windows. Okay. So, but so but I'm not a moon guy. So <laughs> this is where I'm going with this <laughs> okay. weather trumps everything. Yeah. I, I like weather trumps everything. And when we talk about, so, you know, I can plan on November 4th, I'm going to be there. The moon phase is perfect. Like that's what I'm going for. And I get there and it's 80 degrees. 
but you're okay. So when you say the moon moon phase is perfect, you're you're at, you're wanting a bright moon or you're wanting a dark moon. It depends on your season, but I'm not going into moon phase. I hate it. I'm not, no, but you but you, said the, but you said the moon was perfect. What does that mean? Well, say for you, say, well, so for elk, full moon phase, whether it's dark or light, that's what triggers estrus. That is when cows get hot. So whether or not you got a night moon and elk are making more movement in the daytime, which they are on a dark, like when the moon's gone, a new moon, right? Or full moon when they rut all night long. Both are bad. Like, I, but with a full moon, the cows are in heat. So deer, I kind of look at the same thing. However, going away from that weather always trumps. And so going back to your question, what have I seen over the years? Um, I see on drought years, I see the rut a lot later. Whether, what, whatever the moon's doing. So for the last two and three years in Utah, and I can only go off my keyhole, right? I've noticed a better rut October 5th than September 20th, when September 20th in any outfitter's mind is the best date across the West. Best right? date, yeah, yeah. Air quotes, but, best date, hey, yeah. On these drought years, I've noticed later's better. Um, years that I've had a good snowpack and a, a really wet spring, man, Labor Day can be the best rut ever, ever. Like it's crazy. You can sit in one spot all day and call elk after elk after elk after elk. And it's September 7th. Like what the hell? Weather always trumps. In my experience, to answer your question, I'd, well, it's it, hard to it, say. I've never, I can't say like, Oh, it's been trending for the last 20 years, later and later and later and later. I don't believe that. I've seen it go back and forth. What I believe is just weather is king. Water is king. And and so, to your point, okay. So to your point, let's let's let me do me a favor, put a pin in this one as far as immediate time frame weather, like local weather versus seasonal weather. And so again, I'm glad I, I, it, I again, we didn't, we have never ever talked. Nope. Until first time. now. Okay. Right. So I didn't coach him. I didn't say anything. So what, what he, what you're getting at, Ryan, is the fact that, okay, if we look at seasonal weather, drought years, you've seen the, the rut quote unquote a little later from what I've talked about with, with understanding the rut. And I've got a whole video series on that. Yeah. When a cow needs 9% body fat in order to allow her to trigger into estrus, I mean, her, it's just any mammal, even humans. If you're, you want to get your wife pregnant, she's got to have a certain amount of body fat. Otherwise she's not going to get pregnant. So when those drought years, when forage is crappy, and especially if they've got a, a, a calf that they've been nursing and it saps that body condition, you see that shift where they're probably going to come into estrus a little bit later than quote unquote normal versus what you just said with you got that seasonally you got great forage uh, you got good rain they've got adequate food all year round the cow is fat and happy and she's just in great condition now we can talk about differences you know whether she's got a calf at her side or whether there's a mature bull in her presence earlier blah 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 but you can see that trend maybe either on time quote unquote on time or maybe a little early so yeah i mean it's it's 
you've got to look again. This is why I focus with the Rowan resources stuff is what do we see year round and build up from the bedrock of what just what is innate biology, innate behavior. Then you can build up from there rather than going, you know, all these BS from there. Now in Colorado, I will add this, and I have no idea about Utah. I've not hunted Utah yet. I've been kind of toying around with some ideas, but in Colorado, I had, and people have seen the same thing. And I, I've talked to them about the fact that, okay, it, some of these years where you see all of a sudden Labor Day weekend is just on fire. I've got video footage of bulls breeding cows September 2nd. Okay. And so it's like, okay, well, what the hell's going on there? Well, we look at what happened in some of these units prior where maybe the right, where the weather was poor in the fall to where the heart, the rifle season harvest was low. That allows more bulls to bump up in an age class. And if that happens a couple of years in a row, all of a sudden we start bumping up in age class. Yes. The unit is managed for, opportunities to where the vast majority of your, your bulls are getting harvested. But now all of a sudden we have these, you know, handful of bulls that all of a sudden now they're five, now they're six, or now they're seven. Now that's a different behavioral animal on the landscape. We've mm-hmm. just changed a, a behavioral shift to where all of a sudden, and I'm glad you said it. So many people are calling me and they're like, dude, I was watching bulls, you know, strip their valve at the end of July. I'm like, Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what yeah. you're seeing is what they should be, because that if we look at I've got an entire discussion about antler cycling. If you look younger bulls might actually hold their velvet longer than a big mature bull does. And there's reasons for that. But all of a sudden in your particular over the counter unit where all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm seeing these bulls shed their velvet end of July. You might want to pay attention to that. Because that's an older age class animal that's got good body condition. And what you even talking about, they shed that velvet. They're going to, they're going to stick around for a little bit. And then what do they do? Make that pre-rut move. And if they make that pre-rut move and they show up around those cows early or early, let's just say early -er, then what traditionally they do, the presence of a mature bull in with cows will encourage those cows to cycle in early to where if you've got these good years and you start seeing that type of stuff, you, you better pay attention. You say, I'm not going to schedule maybe, maybe in this area, if I know where the cow group is and I know where the cows are going to go and spend the bulk of September, maybe this year, I don't plan on that third or fourth week of September. Maybe because I'm seeing what the bulls are doing. Maybe I need to show up the second week of September or the first week of September, because they might cycle in a little bit early, especially when a lot of these units, we don't hear of, Oh, it's one bull with 30 cows and a whole bunch of satellites. No, it's one bull, four cows, one bull, eight cows, one bull. Maybe it's one bull and one cow and a calf. And he is freaking happy. These changes. And it, it, a lot of times, other than what the body condition of the cow will dictate, the rut ends up being so hinged on what the bull behavior actually kicks things off of. And so it's it's that's why I'm I enjoy these conversations with people that have spent time 
focusing on bulls. You know what I mean? For me, I love spending a lot of times around cows and calves because I get a lot of vocalizations. I get a lot of the, the behavior. We can talk about that. And then bull behavior later on. But I've not spent a lot of time in the summer just focusing on bulls because most of the time, if you're focusing on bulls in the summer, you're watching bulls just chewing their cud. Mm. And there's just not a lot of excitement going on there from a, from an educational standpoint, from an elk behavior and vocalization communication standpoint, you don't get a lot. Now, the one thing I'm curious with you, how much, cause you're running video, how much now, again, I'm going to qualify. Sorry. I keep qualifying. I know you're going after that upper echelon eight plus year old bull that's probably going to be a solitary animal. However, I'm sure you do get other bulls on cameras at time to time. How much footage and how many times have you seen bulls interacting with one another, hissing, gurgling, bearing, you know, basically flaring, showing their, their canines, the, the ivories. How much do you get to see on that with your cameras? How a ton. Okay. Excellent. All right. Okay. So bulls, bulls that stay in groups, younger age class bulls, there is posturing is life. Now, you, if you've ever hunted sheep, you'll see sheep like to hit the same bed for a week or two weeks at a time. And if the wrong sheep gets in the wrong bed, the older sheep will walk over and I mean, hit it right in the ass to get it out of its bed. Elk will do the same thing. They're still a dominance, even though they can't fight I, on their daily routine. It, if, if I had to put together, I bet I, I could probably put together two hours of video of bulls hissing, posturing. Like I've seen them try to like stop each other from getting to a water spot. Like the older age, the older bull will turn around and like dodge back and forth to keep the younger bull from coming in and getting water until he's done and then you'll see the group leave and then that younger bull come back through and start watering there is always a dominance presence with bull elk well and the reason and, why the reason why i asked that is because i've been seeing lately and again this just comes and i'm it, i'm not casting stones because i think people are being malicious um this just recently came up i saw a video that somebody posted um you could see an elk coming in and he had his he has his you know, lips curled up, not now this is the problem. This is where I'm going to get it. There's people that confuse the hissing, you know, gurgling or whether you call it growling or gurgling or whatever, but they'll, they'll hiss. And then you can hear them, you know, they'll, they'll real deep guttural uh, vocalization versus Fleming when they're lip curling and they're testing the cows for estrus and, and that, that cycling those, if you just, briefly look at it you're like oh that, that's what no you've got to pay attention not only timing but number two you've got to pay attention to what the context is are they exhaling or are they sniff or are they pulling air in you're going to see the Fleming response when the when the cows are going to start coming in asters now they might do that to another bull just just smelling a strange bull but that hissing the gurgling has nothing to do with estrus or cows or that is that is a dominance interaction and you will see some bulls 
especially in the summer. This is a, your point is perfectly taken. When you've got bulls in the summer and they're in velvet, you'll hear the dominant bull doing that to subordinate bulls. You'll hear the subordinate bulls doing it to dominant bulls. But as we move into when they go hard horn, let's put it hard horn. Once it's hard horn, it's all, it's all fair game boy. You, the the it, nose goes down before that goes up. There you go. When the antlers are soft, the nose goes up. Whether, whether it's yep. kind of that quick glint, whether it's hissing, antlers are up. They're protecting that. Yep. But the second that everything's hard horn, nose goes down. You get the yep. hill out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. You want to play? Let's play. You're, you're, wow. You know, just 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 one when quick smack. curls during the rut, it, it, it's more like you can see them. They're almost taking like tasting. It's like they're taking Correct. The out of the air. That is what that is. The, really what, of it, the hissing is a, you know, they're getting it out. Yes. And that's the point is that Fleming response. That's literally what they're doing is they're they're curling that lip up and they're pulling air into that organ in there that allows them to evaluate the pheromone level and the, and the hormone level of those cows. So are you actually cycling? Are you, you know, of course the bull is going to want to mount the cow as soon as the cow is going to let him mount, but he, especially an older age class bull, he's going to start check. You talked about it, about those older age class bulls, just sniffing going, Whoa, wait a minute. I think somebody's close. Uh, now I'm going to go down and engage that group. I'm going to let the younger riffraff do all the, the herding and you know, all the, I don't care what he does. All the work. He can burn yeah. all his body fat off. Correct, sir. Correct. Yes. And then he walks down. And he's like, I'm going to taste, basically taste that air, curl that lip up, bring the air in, assess what the estrus, you know, uh, receptivity is and, and phase of that is, and then make a decision from there. The, the hissing and the gurgling that is not about, that is about a dominance interaction. And that is, a, it's a, it's a, and quite honestly, when you hear a lot of the younger age class bulls do it, what I've seen is it is a, a conflict avoidance strategy where they come in and they'll just hiss or they'll gurgle because they're like, I don't want to mess with you. I just, mm-hmm. I just want to come in. I, I, you know, maybe I want to get to this water or I'm just passing through, or I just want to get to the other side and they see another bull or they perceive another bull and they just, I, I don't want to fight with you. So again, this is where that behavior comes in important because if you're on the landscape and you, and you hear that, I, again, I've talked about it. Judge what you're doing with your calling, judge what you're doing with your interpretation of the situation, because it may not have to do anything with depending on what they're doing. It has nothing to do with a, a cow and estrus or, or, you know, oh, the ruts kick. No, no, no. So yeah, I, I was curious just to see your take on, because some people are like, Oh no, 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 no that's only during the rut. And I'm like, no. Pe- no packing order. There's always going to be a packing order. Yep. All right. Last for now, let's, let's, I'm going to ask you one last question. And then if we have more, I'll, I'll, I'll hit you up later. Here's another question for you as someone who's taking someone who, okay, you're, you're talking about someone who's 20 years of their life have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this coveted tag. Or maybe it's a, they, they got a raffle tag, some, whatever, however it is. Right. They want to pick up the phone and call you. Question. How can a person be a good client in those situations for you? Um, I'm lucky enough that well, like basic business, right? Supply and demand. I'm one person. 
I almost get a pick and choose who I take. I like clients that make an outfitter look good. Um, and this is what I try to tell everyone. Okay. Like Utah sucks for elk hunting. Like if you talk to um, like the elk 101 guys, they'll tell you Utah's way down on the chain for trying to get tags to go hunting, to have opportunity. We are not there um, because of the way they've done their limited entry system. And there, there's hunts. I mean, there's a few over-the-counter units. They're okay. And you could spike hunt all over Utah. It's pretty cool. The spike hunt coincides with a lot of our other hunts. I do have spike hunters step on my toes sometimes. Does it make me mad? Not necessarily. It, usually I can go around them or use them to my advantage. Um, my grandpa taught me how to mule deer hunt by getting like ahead of the crowds. The deer are going to run to the saddles. So let's get in front of them. I do the same thing with elk hunting. There's opportunity, but it's not great. I like guys who've gone everywhere and hunted elk all over. And they have a few like 330, 350, even a 360 under their belt. Because those are the guys that want to kill better. And that needs to be there. When, when I say, when people call me, my first question is, what is your expectation? Because... I want to make sure it's realistic. Everyone wants a 400 inch bull. Fact of the matter is there's two walking in Utah right now, right? There's two. Now there's a bunch of others that are on the fence and next year we might have 10. We might have 14. It's realistically, it's not there. So I want to hear what their expectation is. Hey, I've killed like four bulls in the three forties. I got a 355. I really need to break 360. I'm like, Ooh, I like that. Cause I know he's going to hold out. But the fact that a lot of people here have never killed a bull, a big, big bull. They see a 360 bull and a 360 bull is huge. Yeah. It's a great bull. I, I don't care who you are. I, I've seen, I don't know how many giant bulls die and a 360 bull every time my heart's going. I need those guys that they're excited. They're like, holy crap, look at this one coming in. How big is he? 365. Can wow. I shoot him? If you want, <laughs> just remember, we got this bull and it's only day two. I like those guys. I like one, they're still excited. I like two, they're like, okay, I, let's try a little bit more. Because who wants to ruin a hunt on day two? I don't. I would, I'd rather shoot a giant bull on day nine. We had a hunt. Like, it's fun. We're there to hunt. Okay, but uh, I, de devil's advocate, though, day nine, and you come away with nothing. It, that's the expectation. That's why I got to know. What is your expectation? What is your perspective of what this hunt is? When I go into those auctions and we're sitting down with the guy and it's, it's going 40,000, 50,000, 55,000. The one thing I say to him over and over again is, man, I only have two bulls that are over 375 and one that might hit four right now. Through the year, we might have six. Fact of the matter is we're chasing a 360 bull with the hopes that we see one of those others. Is that worth $70,000 to you? Because it's still a hunt. What are, where are your hopes? What are your expectations? They've got to be realistic. And I like a guy who's been to New Mexico five times and done Montana twice and has a hole in, you know, Colorado. He just likes to go kill a meat bull. 
Cause those guys are there because they're like, Hey man, I don't care if we fill the tag. I want giant. Awesome. Let's kill you, a giant. You, you want those guys that, that want to ring out the experience. Mm-hmm. That, I yes, don't want to be freaking they, out on day three. I just, those guys are hard. I've had grown men crying in my camp on day two because they haven't seen a bull over 340. And I was just going to ask you, what about those guys that say, oh, I want a 400 inch or nothing? It, it's like, awesome. Do you know, it's possible you're going to eat your tag. If you're okay with that, I'm okay with that too. You know, whether, just, whether or not they really are okay with that. <laughs> right. I was, I had one I, and, and I got along with a guy. Great. But you know, I, one of the first guys in, in Arizona, he's like, I want a 380 or better. I'm like, okay. But because of the other outfitters that I knew and friends of mine that had cameras, um, when we got done at the end, I ran the numbers and, and 380 or better that particular year in unit nine represented 0.8% of the population of bulls in the unit. And I told him, I'm like, okay, how, how locked in on that number are you? Cause I'll do whatever, whatever your hunt is. This is your hunt. This is your tag. I'm here to help you achieve that. He's like, yes. I'm like, okay, well, that's going to mean in certain days that we're not doing anything except sitting water. Like we're going to get into the water hole because of the combat bow hunting. We know that these animals live in this area. We, we've, we have the opportunity to get on this water hole. You're, we're going to sit in there at three 30 in the morning because we have to be the first one at the water hole. And then you're going to sit all day and you're not going to come out until after dark because the bullet, well, I don't want that hunt. Okay. But to get the bull that you just said you wanted, that's the type of hunt we need to have. Well, I want to go call and bugle and know, I'm like, okay. So those bulls are not doing that behavior right now. So if you want to go do that, we're going to go do that, but we're going to go out and we're going to chase other bulls. And we ended up getting on a 360 bull that he was like, okay, you know, towards like five, day five or eight. I don't remember what it was. No, beyond that, it was probably, yeah, seven or eight or something like that in the hunt. And, you know, okay, fine. We, now he started. So it's one of those things where I have a number in mind, but I also have an experience in mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sometimes those two number, those two things do not intersect. So yeah. which, which one is more important? And then I, I like what you said is you, you, let's ring out the experience. If the number is important and you just like, I just want to kill the first big bull I see again, I'm going to shake your hand, but it is. It's those ones that are like, all right, let's just, let's, I, I've got a once in a chance, a once in a lifetime opportunity here, or maybe for a resident in some of these units, maybe twice in a lifetime or whatever. Let's just see what we can go do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I thought that was an interesting question because, well, and, and what about, you know, preparedness and, you know, for your style of hunt, you're hunting a lot of tree stands, but based on what you were saying in the other podcast, uh, some of these are a long hike in, what are you looking at for like, when you get, I, you get to choose who you get, to, you, who you want to have hunt with you. But, you know, as far as a, a gear or a fitness or skill set, what, I mean, what, what else is on your you know radar screen that you're kind of paying attention to for a client? Well, an arch, archery and the rut are two different things. Um, Utah, um, I, I don't know why, but we favor our rifle hunters. It's like September 17th. That's when our rifle hunt starts. It's strange. It's crazy. Um, I tell those guys, I tell my rifle guys like, hey, there's no pattern to what we're doing. We're not, we know what bulls are alive. We're just going to hone in, find the best one and go after him. 
make sure you're in shape because I do between 13 and 18 miles a day. And I'm not shitting about it. That's what we do. Like you're going to hurt. We're going to take some relief. We're going to crawl in bed. We're going to do it again tomorrow. By day three, these guys are like, holy crap. I had no idea. Like they're just beat. Bow hunters. Um, it's a decent hike in most of the time, typically like where I specialize at. So like the bull we're going for this year, he is maybe a 10 minute ride in a side-by-side dirt road truck. You can take a truck um, to the trailhead. You're about 45 to 50 minutes in to the tree stand. And I set up a changing station. The guy's change their clothes. They got to have enough time to change their clothes, towel off, rebag their stuff, stuff it in, get in the stand, get ready. You know, it's not horrible. The hike out on this bull is probably an hour and 20 minutes. It's hot and it's steep. Um, but you got to be in shape. It, elk don't die by a road very often, especially big elk. It, it happens. I've had bulls live on the side of the highway, but I still didn't kill them by the highway. Elk are tough and you got to be ready to pack an elk out and bone an elk out and take care of your stuff. You want to be in shape. If you're an elk hunter at all, like, man, there's nothing easy about elk really. But I've taken some guys that just were like, I take a lot of old guys. Like I said, this is a tough tag to get. If you started putting in at 20 and it takes 25 years to get it, you're my age, 45, kind of young. 45 but dude i'm telling you i, I hiked 16 miles yesterday i hurt yeah yeah you're you're kind of young if you started your fitness career early and you maintained it right you know because you know i took a hit these past couple of years just from a health standpoint and i'm trying to regain it and freaking hell it sucks mm-hmm. and so if you've never had it 45 years old is a lot different than you've always had it and you've always been in the mountains hike or very fit you know run and whatever you know bike and you know it depends but, on what, yeah. Age means nothing. More so than that, I'm taking a lot of guys in their sixties. Yeah. That's, that's the honest truth of it. Most of these guys that are drawing tags right now are in their sixties and not a lot of them are bow hunters. Those are my rifle guys. They've waited a long time. They're not waiting for 17 years for a bow tag. They're waiting for 24 years for a rifle tag. And fortunately you can shoot a gun a lot further and you're in the rut and three sixties, the quota, like, it, it's always hard to say, but setting up your expectation right up front is, is very important. Like 400 is fun. It's fun to say. It doesn't happen. It, to me, the 400 word is worse than the other F word because it's so unrealistic. I, I mean, even to a guy who's, I, I don't even know how many I've seen fall, maybe 12, right? I've probably only seen 15 or 16 in my life just to see one is amazing, let alone get it on the ground. And you live this lifestyle. This isn't just, Oh, this is the first time I'm going to go after this. Yeah. And so, you know, setting up a realistic expectation and just, I mean, trying to remember that this is hunting. It's fun. Yeah. It took a lot of years. This took a lot of money. We're still here to have a good time. And Whenever I book a guy, I always make sure they talk to my guide. If it's not me, they have a good conversation with the guide because there's nothing worse than being stuck on the mountain with a guy you hate for 10 days. Like, do this worse. Like, 
we're here to have fun. And that's, that's the biggest thing about all of it. Like, man, if, if you're not here to have fun, if you're here for inches, you're here for the wrong reason. Like we're going to go for inches. Like you waited a long time. You paid a lot of money. Let's go. Let's keep that in mind. But in the back of our mind, let's try to have fun first. Yeah. And what you said earlier is the one that helps make you look good. Yeah. Of course, if you kill a 400 inch, Ryan Carter's going to be a hero. Yeah. But by the same token, you kill a 360 bowl. That doesn't damage Ryan's reputation. No. It's still look, you still killed a really great bull. The question. Oh, yeah. He's giant. So, yes. I mean, and, and that's what people don't really think about. Okay. Let's just say you have an even typical six by six bull. You got a 360 bull. You throw yeah. three inches on each antler tip. You went from a 17 inch, 17 all the way through to a 20. Uh, about 4% of the population can tell the difference. Exactly. That's the point. So right. yeah, 360 looks good. 400 is a freaking monster, but all the gradations in between, it's like, man, when the end of the day, does it really matter? Does it, does right. it really matter? Right. And the thing, you know, to your point on, and I've heard you communication expectations and then communication. And that, and what you said was very, I don't, how do I want to put this? People need to really have a come to Jesus moment with themselves before they even step foot in camp because, and, and I, like you said, numbers are one thing day seven on a grind will really start showing you what you really wanted and what you didn't. And I think the other thing, maybe what I was hearing in there is be honest. You're communicating with your guide. And when you're calling Ryan or anybody else about what you want, freaking be honest with yourself and be honest with the guide because, and I've turned away folks. I, I had a I had a couple people ask me this year uh, for Arizona. They were looking for something that they, they were the, they were the, type of people that were like, I drew this tag. I'm looking for a 400 inch bowl. I'm not your guy. Mm -hmm. uh, that That's just, I, I'm not your guy. I, I'm not going to waste your time. Would I love your money? Hell yeah. Could we go out on the landscape in that unit and put a, and, and just go? Yes, we could. Do we have the ability, the skill set to kill a 400? Yes. But is that, do I have the 10 guys helping me? And do I have all the, no, that that's not me. Go with someone that that is, that's their life. You know what I mean? It, so just be honest. If, if, if a number is your, if a number is the end, all be all be honest about it. If the experience is about it, then just be honest with, be honest with yourself, but be honest with the guide and outfitter. Because like you said, 10 days into this damn thing, if you came in under false pretenses or, and this is where a good guide and outfitter shines. If, if the outfitter, misrepresented themselves it's going to be miserable mm -hmm. and do you want 20 years of your life now burned on a shit hunt because you didn't pick the right outfitter or you weren't honest about it coming into the the the, the situation so no i think communication and being you know expectations yeah, yeah. and you and you know you you touched on something so it uh, you put your that thing on your stories about questions, um, and I, I shared it. 
Yep. We, we've touched on a lot of the stuff. Just, I was just scrolling through it real quick a second ago. Yeah. Hit them uh, if there's something well, that you want to hit. Well, the only thing that we didn't touch on, uh, there, there's a new law here in Utah about uh, limiting the amount of guides that um, can be utilized. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It, it, it just passed. Um, what are the, there's two things. One, one's that you can't, um, it's a one-on-one guide service or a two-on-one, a guide and a spotter and a client, and that's it. Uh, being paid. That's a new so you So you Just can't pass. even, you can't have hunt, uh, helpers, quote unquote, up on the mountain working yeah, you, for you. You can't have 20 guys from this unit all kind of up on points, blah, blah, blah. Now, is there loopholes? Yeah. It, is it still going to slow down the do-it-yourself hunter? No, because he, he can have as many guys as he wants. He can have his old family on every point. I, I think it was specifically targeting specific outfitters. It doesn't affect me. I, I've never had the manpower to do that. That's not what I do. <laughs> so for me, I was just like, oh, that kind of sucks for some people, you know, but they can still compensate. I, I still think be like, hey, dude, go cover this ridge. I'll give you a Swarovski. Sit there for four days. <laughs> I still think these outfitters are going to find loopholes to whatever yeah. it is. Uh, seems like there was a second part to that. And I just, I'm blanking on it, but they were specifically coming out at outfitters. They asked how it was going to affect me. Bottom line. It's not, it's not something I stress about. It's not how I like to hunt. Um, so it, for okay. Me, so, like, so just snowball on that. That's like me and the, and the game camera ban and Jay in the game camera ban in Arizona. I never relied on them. So it really doesn't do anything now. But what I said before, what I'm more worried about is the unintended consequence. Now, now that there's a change on the landscape, how am I going to have to behave with it? So with that being said, now, how do you think, what do you, what, what do you see? I don't know if you've even, you know, gamed it in your head. What do you see as possibly an unintended consequence? What, what do you, how do you perceive that, that change um, rippling across the landscape? As far as that goes, I, I don't see a whole lot. I am. Um... I see a lot of finger pointing. I'll see a lot of angry people. I, um, I'll see a lot of paperwork for, uh, wildlife, uh, game cops, right. Um, going after so-and-so because he said he had six outfitters, six guys glassing for him, whatever. Someone said that he had such right. and such. I, I see a big headache for those guys. I, I don't know what the intended consequence was. I just know it's going to be more of a headache than it's probably actually worth. Um, I know specific outfitters that Arizona passed that law and they said, okay, well, your hunt just went up from 15,000 to 50,000. I know two outfitters in Arizona. Your hunt is now $50,000 because now I have to hire 10 more guys because we need more eyes. Yeah. So I, I see a rise in cost as far as that goes. I, I don't know. There, there's always unintended consequences. The whole baiting thing in Utah, right? This is the part that infuriates me. They were targeting, I think, they never actually said, but I think they were targeting specific units in Southern Utah that were killing a lot of deer off apple piles. They thought it wasn't fair chase and they put a stop to it. We had, we specifically have a nonprofit group and one legislator and whoever, whatever lobbyist they're hiring to pay him targeting 
leveling the playing field, making fair chase. And a lot of people like are pointing fingers at where it shouldn't be. It's just silliness, but let me just look at like baiting. Okay. They targeted those people. How did it affect everybody long-term? Well, you just took away opportunity for say I wanted to take my 14 year old on our first bow hunt. My girls shoot bows with me, but none of them hunt. But say my 14 year old was like, dad, I want to try shooting something. I want to eat it. My cool. Well, my best friend does the, the, the city, the urban wildlife program where he targets deer living in the city and he has to bow hunt them because it's in the city. And so he puts out some bait and he goes and shoots deer. He gets paid by the state to do it. Well, he could have had her come and she could have sat on some pile and shot her first deer. Well, that opportunity has gone. And it, I guess you could have done that on public land as well. You know, you're trying to get the youth involved. You just took that away. Or say my 82 year old grandpa who used to bow hunt with me, wanted to go shoot something, just anything, set a blind up, like can't bait him now. It, he can't bow hunt. I, he couldn't probably anyway, but there are guys where we just took opportunity away from a certain percentage of the population, young, old, my age, handicapped, wheelchair, whatever, you know, this, this uh, legislator that's been pushing all this through that a lot of people are pointing fingers at him when I really think he's just working with a nonprofit that's got a different objective. However, he's get, he's got the pressure on him. When he painted this picture in front of the house, he, he showed like, here's a trail camera picture. Here's a dead bull. Here's a trail camera picture. Here's a dead buck. Well, one was a digiscope picture of a buck. Like that I know so-and-so took because I know him on social media. And the dude that killed him is an outfitter from the other side of the state. Like it was this huge, it was the most yeah, fabricated. It looked like it was painted by an anti-hunter by a guy who's saying, oh, I'm a hunter like you. But the, the part that really, really turned my stomach he showed a video of a guy in an outfitter sitting in a blind and there's a pile of apples. And here comes in this group of bucks and he shoots the biggest buck there. And the shot wasn't great. It was a little far back. They go in the next day to get the deer. Um, they, they didn't go in that night. And there's a good reason why, but they, they go back out. They come back the next day. The coyotes had eaten half of it. He painted this nasty picture said this was done on public land this is like not wrong this is fair chase or this is wrong this is not fair chase the dude was bound to a wheelchair he was a vet it was on private land on a ranch and that was a good opportunity for a guy in a wheelchair yeah to actually shoot a deer with his bow he can't hike in 45 minutes. He can't take the 10 minute side by ride, side ride and the 45 minute hike in, climb up a tree and sit for four hours. That opportunity is not there for that dude. So if you're talking about fair chase, let's talk about fair pursuit. They're robbing opportunity from the public with these unintended consequences like what you're bringing up. You're, you're touching it. You're touching on a lot of subjects that I've gotten chapped at my ass over the past years. I mean, but the thing is, is 
what you said about that legislator. Now they very well may be a sport, a sportsman. And, and I say, air, I, I use air quotes. I don't mean that in, in a pejorative because we have in the sportsman community, I've talked about this. We have everything from the Uber lib, you know, leftist liberal to the Uber right wing guys. Our umbrella is very, very large, but I I've had these same issues with, um, cause I talk, I talk about policies that basically are catered to the wealthy, healthy, and able, um, because there's been sportsman groups that have lobbied for basically de facto wilderness, you know, in Colorado, we, we want to change this, ch- this whole big chunk of ground into roadless. Um, and they know they can't get wilderness designations through Congress, at least back then. And so what they would do is they, we don't have to get in the, in the weeds on it, but Bottom line, you, you had these organizations that were sportsmen's organizations. These are, I mean, that that's what they are, you know, advocating for these policies. It's like, guys, what you're talking about is you are advocating for the wealthy, healthy, and able. The wealthy, they can pay somebody to get them in there. The healthy and able, the, the people that can walk, hike, strenuously, climb, you're, you're excluding anybody that is older, that's mm-hmm. a kid, that is maybe injured or handicapped or held me dealing with long COVID where my lungs don't freaking work the way they used to be in the past. And it's where now I've got to look at what I'm going to do on the landscape. We don't care. We, we, we just don't, well, we don't want oil and gas. And so then we're going to shut this entire area down and it's all going to be roadless. And, and we can, okay. So not only now, because you, because that's what you valued and because you had lobbyists, you painted this lovely picture of quote unquote, protecting your, you know, national forest and protecting your public lands. But what did we do? We shut it out of people that are less fortunate than you are, whether that's health, ability, and money. And then, oh, what was the unintended consequence? Oh, that's right. The Forest Service can no longer go in and do habitat improvements because that might put a two-track road and that's wilderness or that's roadless. You can't do it. Oh, if a forest fire goes in through there, well, that's fine. We can do it with tanker trucks, but we really can't bring our, our we got to have hand crews going there now. Oh, and, and if uh, we need erosion control, well, no, we can't go in and do erosion control anymore because that might put a two track in there. Oh, and noxious weeds. Yep. Mm, can't go in there and treat noxious weeds. Now with vehicles, we have to do it on horseback because, you know, my, the unintended consequences of the ripple effect of, of people's good intentions or, their naivety on the broad scope of the entire issue, I think is, I think the unintended consequences sometimes are worse than the actual regulation that, or the, the change that they wanted to bring in, in, in uh, about in the first place. So hundred percent, I'm with you hundred percent. The fair, the fair chase, those, these guys are targeting sneaky people. They're targeting guys like me with, with a, with a, with a, with a punt gun. It, yeah, not, not with a, not with a rifle, just going, okay, yeah. we're going to take you and not with even a shotgun. They're going to put a punt gun and go, come on, we're just going to take you all out. They're saying fair chase, but they're taking away the side of it that we need to look at is the fair pursuit. We're not all this sneaky. I am very, very sneaky compared to this guy. I, I'm more capable. I can do X, Y, Z. And these guys can't, it, it's sad when they lump a demographic in like that. It, it just doesn't work making laws on feelings. It, it's so naive. It's so like, it's heartbreaking. And it, in fact, of the matter, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, it is why we are going to lose hunting. Eventually, these same lobbyists are going to be hired by anti-hunters. And the first thing they're going to target is the thing every anti-hunter hates is predators. 
They're going to make it illegal for us to what harvest doing now. lions, to harvest bears. And all of a sudden, what you see in California right now is going to be across the West. And I promise you, your game is gone. Well, These four years of giant mule deer, giant elk is going to be taking away by lobbyists in our House Senate without your ability to vote because they are going to learn from you. They are learning from us <laughs> how to pass legislation. That, that's so, an interesting, that's an interesting and, take on it. I'm not disagreeing with it, but that's an interesting take on it. Keep going. Well, I, I just think we just got to be very careful about what we allow because now everyone knows that we can pass law without the public. We can literally pass any law we want by hiring with the right amount of money. We can take $40,000 to a lobbyist. And, and I've talked about this, like I could go after that nonprofit and just say, they are taking X amount of money from our state resource, elk, mule deer, blah, 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 and putting it into their pocket because of an event they host. Why don't we hire a lobbyist, make it illegal for them to take that portion of that money out. And I'm going to pass it through Congress and shut that nonprofit down. The problem with that is every anti-hunter is watching all this stuff going on and they're going to say, cool, I'm going to pass a law saying hunting is wrong. And our North American model for conservation is going to go out the door through our house without us ever even knowing it while we're bitching about the grip and grin photo. It's going to well, happen. But see, here we are. What are we? We have three and a half hours in and you want to just jump into this <laughs> because this is another three and a half hour discussion because yeah. I, 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 I'm with you on so much of it. Now we may have some disagreements on points, but it would be a good discussion for later, but no, man, you're, you're right. I mean, just, I think the, un to our discussion here with the game cameras and what, you know, is it going to affect you? Probably not. Um, but what are the, going to be the unintended consequences of, of the whole thing? Dude, I'm gonna cut you loose, man. It's been three and a half hours. Let's let's uh, let's circle back later on. I'd I'd love to have you out again and have some more conversations with you because I right. I did I didn't even there's there's so many more. I was like, each one of these is a rabbit hole that I'm like, ah, we we could have this for another discussion at a different time. But cool, man. I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you if they want to follow you and all that all that stuff. Uh, everything. I, I'm on a bunch of platforms. Everything's under Ryan DC Outfitters something. Ryan underscore DC Outfitters, Ryan DCO. I don't know. I And I, I'm not as active as I used to be. I, in all reality, social media has kind of gone out of control. I still get on, make some posts. I like to store it. When, if I'm doing something fun, I put it on there. But, you know, I, I am not an influencer. It is not my full-time job. I have a real job. Um, outfitting is my side hustle that I love because I watch, I like watching big, big elk die. That's, I mean, this is my favorite thing. So I, I do get on social media quite a bit, but probably not as active as I used to be. Oh, cool, man. No, I, I follow you on Instagram and I've told everybody I, I'm, I'm like almost never on Facebook anymore. If yeah. I do anything with social media, it's on Instagram. And then, yeah, so cool. I, for, for those people of, of the same ilk, um, yeah, for you, it's it's Ryan underscore DC Outfitters. Yep. Um, and then you'll see it because, yeah, I, I enjoy your content because you do. You post, it, A, a lot of good pictures, but, you know, I hope to see some more good clips of good 
good bull behavior on your game cameras this year because there's a lot of it. So, Yeah, I don't think that's going away. We'll be all right. Cool, man. I appreciate your time. We'll talk soon. Yep. It's a great chat. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Okay, see you.